we are here to talk about gender sexuality in the Bible. That's what we're talking about these, uh, these two days. And uh, it was a privilege to be with you last night. Great questions, my goodness. And uh, to, uh, today we're going to talk about godly womanhood first, and then we're going to talk about godly manhood. And then at the end, our third session for today, we will have a kind of overview talk of some of these major issues. We'll talk again about some of the cultural matters we were talking about last night. Today, though, I want to talk about womanly identity. Womanly identity is one of the most controverted areas of our culture. If you want to get people hopped up, talk about women's matters. Uh, You'll remember in the 2012 presidential campaign, uh, Mitt Romney got into some hot water for saying that he had binders full of women, for example. Um, He, (laughs) it's still a strange quotation even to say out loud, Um, and he was, he was said to be waging a war on women. That was a major kind of uh, response to Romney from the other side. Um, suffice it to say that womanly identity is a battleground area. And it's one of the tougher things to talk about in the church because our culture has militarized on this point. But as believers, we don't have the option of not talking about something the scripture talks about. The Bible calls us to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And so the church can't fall quiet on even controversial matters. Even when the culture pushes hard against what our scripture teaches, it's something that we have to teach. So I want to give you uh, six points then on womanly identity. The first is this. Womanly identity is God-given. It's God-given. And before I go into a biblical text here, uh, I want to think back to a movie I saw some years ago. It's a movie called Juno. And in this movie, some of you may have seen it, this uh, young girl has gotten pregnant out of wedlock, and her father has just learned of this. And he's very disappointed in her, and he says, "Uh, I thought you were the type of girl uh, for whom this didn't happen. And Juno, this young girl, looks back at her father and says, I guess I don't really know what kind of girl I am. And that was a poignant moment when I first saw this movie and first heard this exchange. Because in it, I think I heard the cry of maybe a generation. And and it's true certainly of women, I think, but I think it's also true of young men as well. Many young men and women don't know who they are. But let's zero in on young women this morning. Many young women don't know who they are. They don't know what they're supposed to be. Uh, The culture is very happy to put expectations on women and call them to a certain way of womanhood. Um, But many young girls, particularly in the church, don't know what womanhood, again, is created to be. So when you go to Genesis 2, for example, you see that there is a key uh, principle given about womanly identity. I referenced it last night, but in Genesis two eighteen and 20, you read that Eve, the woman who was created from the man's rib, is a helper fit for him. And this is very interesting for us because you see that Adam is not created as a helper for Eve. This is a unique part of Eve's identity. Now, we know that the man and the woman are created equally in God's image. So Eve, once again, is not given a subordinate status from the start. She isn't. The Lord reveres, uh, loves both men and women. But Eve has a special status that is hers alone. I will make for him a helper fit 
for him. You have the Apostle Paul picking up the same flow of thought in the New Testament when he says in 1 Corinthians eleven nine, 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so, again, this is, <laughs> this is the kind of teaching, these are the kind of verses that put us in the, cult, in the cultural penalty box, excuse me. But we have to note that if the Bible teaches this, if this is what God's word says, this is something that we have to get our arms around and we have to receive as good. This is not a negative thing. This is not something that we should avoid talking about in the church. We should emphasize that there is a distinct glory in womanhood, and this glory is found in being a helper that is fit for the man. The animals, of course, the birds, uh, the serpents of, of the field are not fit for Adam, right? It's only, it's only this woman who is also a human being, also the image of God, who corresponds uh, to Adam, if you look at the Hebrew word for the term "fit for him," kinegdo, uh, this there's this idea of corresponding or equal or adequate to who Adam is. So Eve is a complement to Adam, and this is what God pronounces her to be. This is what God speaks over her. And so, right off the bat in the scripture, you see this: there's no competition between the sexes. We commonly feel like this in our culture today. In American culture, there can be this kind of sentiment on offer today. Uh, Men had it good for a while. Men were kind of the patriarchal authority, and they kind of kept women down. And so now women, uh, after the sexual revolution, after multiple waves of feminism, women have it good. And women are kind of, you know, getting their just... Desserts here. Women are are making an equal playing field in terms of uh, the sexes and their interaction. But we need to note that the scripture doesn't enfranchise any kind of cultural war between men and women. That's not the picture we have from scripture when you're going to the original plan of God for men and women. God wants men and women to live in perfect harmony with one another. That's what he creates us for. He wants the man to be in perfect harmony with the woman. Yes, he does want Adam to lead his wife. He indicates that clearly. Adam is the one who names his wife. So that's, that's, that's clear to Adam. But Adam is never to think that he is superior to his wife. And every time he looks at his wife, he is supposed to look at his wife and think, she was created from my body. Wow. (laughs) This woman God gave me is flesh of my flesh. In other words, sometimes people will say that the Christian worldview, by virtue of teaching that a man has a leadership position in the home, people will say that Christian theology keeps women down and sets women up to be abused by men and these sorts of things. And these are terrible realities. We need to handle these carefully. We need to be very clear that it's the exact opposite. When a man looks at his wife out of the reflection of Adam and Eve, he is supposed to think, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Brothers and sisters, there is no idea out there on offer in our culture anywhere that is more calibrated against abuse than that. Christian theology offers men a reverential picture of womanhood. It doesn't allow men to treat women poorly. It doesn't allow men to think of wives as inferior. It doesn't allow men to think of women as those who just serve whatever they want. Christian theology calls for men of all worldviews and systems in the world to treat women well. It's really quite a beautiful picture that we see from Genesis 2 and then 1 Corinthians 11 and other texts in the scripture. 
Now, we need to make very clear that in a fallen world, post-Genesis 3, as we were talking about last night, there, there is going to be friction, sadly, between a man and a woman. And so a man is not always going to lead well. Let's just be clear about that. And a woman is not always going to receive his leadership well. This is part of what it means to live in a cursed world. But we do need to make this clear as well. It's not a bad thing for a man to possess authority, spiritual authority, leadership, responsibility in his home. Our culture tells us that rebellion against authority is a good thing, and it's a lie. Rebellion against authority is not a good thing. I remember uh, playing a video game some years ago, and as the screen was loading, you had the, the logo of the company, and this little voice said, question everything. <laughs> And I realized in those two words, I was getting a little picture of the worldview of the age. Question everything. I'm not supposed to trust anything. I'm not supposed to receive authority as good. Inherently, instinctively, I'm supposed to push against authority, kick against it, fight it off, dislike it, see it as negative, see it as harmful. That's the way the culture was training me to think. And we just have to note that this is not a biblical perspective. Fundamentally, every Christian is under the authority of God. We recognize that we are called, every believer, to submit to God. Not some believers, not one sex or the other. Every Christian is called to submit ourselves to the Lord. We're also called to submit ourselves to our government, interestingly, which can be difficult because our government is also under the influence of the fall. But here again, we have a picture of this in terms of marriage. We know from Ephesians 5, which we talked about last night, that there is a head and submission structure in marriage. And we need to note that this is not something we want to kick against. When our children in the home uh, fight against our authority, we need to know that that's the sin nature that they inherited from Adam. We have passed it on to them by virtue of procreating and, and them taking existence in the world. But we also need to train children that they need to receive authority. They need to they need to place themselves under authority and even welcome it. We don't want them to be mindless. Uh, we don't want them to be pawns. But that's not the same thing as receiving authority. So modern parenting is very different. Is at a very different starting point from where the church is. The church believes not that we want to browbeat our children, not that we don't want them ever to say anything, not that we don't want them to be lively and joyful. We do. We want all of those things. We love children as a movement. But we also need to train our kids to receive authority. It's vitally important that from, from their earliest years, we be training them in these ways. And, and women, of course, are, are given the opportunity in the Christian worldview to really dig into training children. Too many people, from what I have heard over the years, um, too many people have the standpoint that you're kind of... Um, you're kind of loose in how you raise your kids. You kind of let your kids be kids. And then when you get to the older years, maybe the teenage years, when rebellion really starts kicking in, that's when you kind of start to put in place boundaries. And that's when authority starts to kick in. I was trained a different way. I was trained to see things in kind of the shape of a funnel, a reverse funnel, if you will. In the early years, you're working closely with your kids, you're trying to teach them right from wrong. You're trying to teach them day by day to obey you, to respond to your authority. You're teaching them things like when you say to come, when you say to do something, when you say we're done playing with the toys, it's not a one, two, three. It's not it takes forever to happen. It's not a negotiated truce between you and the child. 
there is a, there's a response. The child instinctually obeys, and you're trying to train them that way such that over the years the funnel widens, and you're actually not having to constantly pepper them with commands as the years go on. And by the time, Lord willing, they get to their high school years, they get to their teenage years, so-called, they actually do trust you. They don't see your authority as a negative thing, at least most of the time, we can say. Nobody's perfect, right? No parent's perfect and no child is perfect. But ideally, in the church, we're a counterculture when it comes to parenting, not just, you know, when it comes to our vision of the gospel or something. As a movement, as a church, we're a counterculture. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to show the people around us how to be a good father and mother. And Christian women need to show women in their community, women in their neighborhood, what it means to be a godly mother. You are evangelistic. You stand out. You show that the gospel has effects when you live in this way. We are not parents just like any other parent. We have totally different values, principles. is a better word than values, but we have totally different principles in place. We believe uh, that, you know, there's this structure in a marriage and that children are to be under their parents and are to love their parents and obey them. This is one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant. And certainly the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 calls children to love parental authority. So unlike so many Hollywood movies and TV shows, you've seen these and I've seen these, right? where the kid instructs the parents. This is a big thing in the 90s, by the way, 90s and, and the early aughts. You know, you had one movie after another where the child ended up being the one with the pearls of wisdom, dispensing them to people 40 years older than them. And uh, so the child kind of brings the parents to heal. The, the parents are fundamentally childlike. And that reflects a modern worldview where nobody really grows up, right? But the children, for some reason, have this kind of oracle-like wisdom that they dispense to the parents. That's not, that's not the way the scripture sees it. It's not the way the scripture has it. We are called to be in In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, we are called to be authorities in our children's lives. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we, you know, go after them. It doesn't mean we're unkind to them. Authority does not in any way need to be seen as demeaning and harsh. Authority can be kind. Authority can be even gentle. But authority is, it does denote leadership. Clear, plain, and simple. And children should be trained to obey They should be trained to obey from the earliest years. And fathers need to really dig in and help this. Too often, when you go to a restaurant, you see a dad who is on his phone checking the latest scores of whatever team he likes or something like this. And you see a mom who is typically scrambling to try and corral the kids and get them to do what they're supposed to be doing. And that is not a biblical picture. I'll talk more about manhood in the next session. But we need to note that children need to be trained to obey. Children need to respond instinctually when a parent calls them to do something or asks them to do something. They're not, you know, they're not supposed to be unthinking beings, but they're supposed to understand that obedience is a profound way. They obey the Lord and they glorify God. Children need to hear that. We have a different conception of parenting than the world has. Brothers and sisters, we do. We are different. We are not just like the culture. We have a different understanding of authority and obedience. Modern feminism wants women to see themselves as independent from men and wants men to see themselves as independent 
from women. And modern feminism and just a modern culture in general wants to play down any differences between men and women. But it is so clear when you go to Genesis 1 and especially Genesis 2, it's so clear that God wants us to see that we're not in tension, we're not in competition one another as sexes. There should be a mutual interdependence between men and women, in particular a husband and wife. And this is a much richer and deeper understanding of human sexuality and gender than anything anything the culture offers us. Secular gender theory is going to create competition and even hatred between the sexes. It's going to teach that life as a man or a woman is a zero-sum game, and both men and women believe this, especially when they've been hurt by the opposite sex. Too many men out there are living in such a way uh, they, they feel rejected at some point by a woman or something, and they are now living to essentially get back at women. And too many men have had a bad experience with a man and they are living in such a way as to kind of try to separate themselves from men and dislike men. And and our culture, again, encourages this kind of competition and tries to make us see that life is a zero-sum game. One sex has to beat the other. And it's not true. That's not what we were made for. We were made to love one another. We were made to dwell in harmony together. We're made to appreciate our Differences, those differences between men and women should not be threatening to us. They shouldn't annoy us. They should, in fact, be seen as the glory of God alive in manhood and in womanhood. Point two, women are life givers. This is one of the most beautiful realities in the scripture. Women are life givers. Women give physical life to humanity, a task so great and so significant you can't quantify it. The fact that God hangs the survival of the human race on women, on bearing children, right? And then on nurturing children, raising them after they are born is immense. This is telling us something about the unique glory of womanhood. Brothers and sisters, how different is this from an evolutionary Darwinian secularist framework? Where, yes, women happen to give birth to children, but there's nothing glorious about it. It's just the way the race evolved. It's just the way things played out over the years. Uh, So, sure, women should bear children, but that doesn't signify anything. We believe that a woman bearing children is a little worldview in itself. The fact that a woman has has the capacity to bear children is telling us something profound about the nature of a woman. God makes women life givers. You can even see that testified in the scripture, Genesis 3.20. Turn there with me. Genesis 3 verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, the mother of all living. That's something you might quickly read over if you were reading in your devotions, you know, mother of all living, fine, that's her name. No, that's telling you something profound about the nature of womanhood, this unique capacity of a woman to nurture and bear life. What an incredible privilege God gives to womanhood. And you can see here again why Satan would seek to raise support and encourage belief in abortion. Abortion is nothing other than targeting women at their core. Women today have been taught to think that abortion is liberating to them, that it's them taking ownership of their body. That's what the pro-choice movement says. That's what Planned Parenthood says. It's the precise opposite. Abortion is a woman targeting her body. 
It's not a woman loving her body, taking control of it. It's a woman playing the role of God and destroying the fruit of her womb. There is nothing worse that we can imagine than killing innocent babies in the womb. Satan seeks to turn the heart of women against God and against God's design for them. That's what's taking place at every abortion clinic. When I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, when I was teaching at Boyce College and Southern Seminary, I taught there for five years, loved that school, got my MDiv from Southern Seminary. Uh, this, uh, for several years, I would go on many Friday mornings, at least, to the abortion clinic in Louisville on Market Street. There's only one abortion clinic in Louisville, praise God. And uh, we would go there, uh, a number of us from my church. And uh, at about 7 a.m., women would start coming to this facility. And we didn't shout at them. We didn't protest them. We sought to walk alongside them as they walked into that clinic. We sought to establish a quick connection with them. And then we tried to engage them and encourage them not to give, uh, not to give their baby to death, but to give their baby life. And we would call them, we would tell them that we can offer them help. Interestingly, in Louisville, you have on Market Street, the abortion clinic right here, and then you have the pro-life clinic next door. The abortion clinic and the pro-life clinic, uh, the Women's Resource Center, share a wall. They share a wall. That is one of the stronger depictions I've ever witnessed in my life of how good and evil coexist in this world. On one side of the wall, babies are, are slaughtered. On the other side of the wall, babies are saved. You couldn't get a starker contrast, right? This is Market Street in Louisville. So we weren't, we weren't telling them, you know, I can't imagine telling them this, we hate you or something. We're telling them, we love you. It's a sin to kill your baby. Jesus Christ offers you life through, through him, through his saving death and resurrection. Please trust him. But, but listen, we have this clinic where, where you can go and you will, get, you will get resources for your pregnancy. We care for your baby. There are people who will adopt your baby. Today, there were church members in Louisville who had a standing offer to adopt a baby of a woman who decided against abortion. So we were striving at kind of the tail end of an abortion culture, if I could say the word, a culture of death. At the tail end of it, we, we were trying with whatever little agency we had, whatever five-second burst of conversation we could get to encourage these women to see that the child in their womb was not a mistake. It was not something, you know, that they needed to kill. It was, it was a blessing from God, though it may not feel like that. We recognized as we talked with these women that many of them didn't feel that way. And many of them were in rough circumstances, let's be honest. And we didn't try to sugarcoat that. We would try to say, you know, we'll walk beside you. There are counselors who can help you through this. There are local churches who will, who will provide resources for you. We knew of local churches. My local church helped women in numerous ways, and others did as well in Louisville. But see, here's the thing. In all of this work, in all of this effort, we were working against our culture because our culture was training women that the fruit of the womb is a curse. It's a curse to have a baby growing in you. And many of them felt that with a man who wouldn't support them, and we understood that. But we were trying. We were trying against all the momentum of this world to help them see that it's a blessing to give birth to a baby. Even if you can't raise the baby, by the way, there's, there's adoption. There's many couples out there who, uh, who would love to adopt. There's a good number of couples who can't conceive, right? And they would love to adopt a child. They would love to be a father and mother, and they can be through adoption. We don't think children only count. 
uh, when they are natural born. Uh, We believe that adopted children have immense value. We believe that the church ideally should be a culture uh, that encourages adopting and that encourages uh, taking in foster children. It would be beautiful to do foster to adopt and these sorts of things. Um, I know of one church, Cornerstone Church in Iowa, Ames, Iowa, that has effectively uh, become a kind of uh, field team for local uh, foster care efforts. In other words, this huge church, 3,000 people, led by a guy named Jeff Dodge, a good friend of mine, this church has become so involved in fostering culture, and many, in many cases foster to adopt, that essentially the area authorities now look to Cornerstone Church whenever, almost whenever there's a child who's in foster care. And many of those children, as I say, end up in a home for, for all of life. Now, not every church can do that. Not every church is that large. 3,000 people is a lot. But listen, that's an example of the church being a counterculture. That's an example of the church recognizing that children are not a curse, but a blessing. And there are many women in that church who own that reality dearly. We see nurturing life in the church not as a burden that is fundamentally placed upon women, but as a joy, as a gift women are given by God. Adam didn't look at Eve in Genesis 3.20 and say, well, poor woman, now she's got to care for the baby. That's going to be rough. She's got lots of other stuff she wants to do, but she's got to be the mother of all living. Adam looked at his wife and he saw that this was a joyful reality, that she would be able to nurture and love life. And you have that reinforced, of course, as we talked about in Titus 2, a woman being a worker at home, loving her children, raising her children, training her children. You have it as well in 1 Timothy 5.14, where a widow, Paul says, is is, he doesn't call her to work, interestingly. He calls her to, to manage manage her household, and raise her children. We, we recognize, uh, per Proverbs 31, that a woman can definitely contribute to her home in financial terms. My wife may do that, for example, in our home. She's very gifted at the piano, uh, piano player, and she may give piano lessons in coming years, for example, to contribute in a small way economically to our home. I don't have a problem with that, provided, you know, our priorities are in the right place. But here's the thing. We do not fundamentally approach children and child raising and the home in the way the world approaches it. This is not a ball and chain, like women were told in the 1960s and 70s. Motherhood, child raising. That's, that's a lie. A woman will find tremendous joy, if God calls her to this, in this calling. Not every woman is called to be a wife and a mother. But women who are, I'm telling you, there is profound delight to be experienced in being a wife and a mother. Because women, women are uniquely made to be life givers. Men are not. Men are not made to be life givers in this way, in the sense that we nurture it. I saw a headline just this week that said, for the first time, a man is giving birth to a child. Now, on the face of it, you might think, oh, the culture is deteriorating, and oh, this is so terrible. How can a man? And you just look at the picture of this couple, and it's not a man. It's a woman who's dressing as a man and presenting herself as a man. But men cannot do this, right? Men can't bear children. It's an impossibility. And so we recognize that this is a unique role for women. This is a beautiful aspect of womanhood, and we push back against a culture that tells us 
that to be a life giver is a problem, is a bad thing, is a drag on your ambitions, is a negative. We affirm with Adam looking at his wife and we say that it is an incredible thing to be able to bear and nurture children. Point three, womanhood does not depend on marriage. So having just talked about the unique dignity and worth of bearing children, which only women can do, we need to note that you do not become a woman of God when you get married or give birth to children. It's very clear from texts like 1 Corinthians 7 that to be a single Christian is not a negative state or even a neutral state. To be a single Christian, whether a man or a woman, is a God-glorifying state. We, we as Christians and as Christian preachers and teachers want to be extremely clear about this. Sometimes young women in particular, even more than young men I think, are made to feel inadequate if they are not married. Uh, they'll hear questions from well-intentioned folks along the lines of, Aw, there's no young man in your life? Nothing working out for you? Nothing going on there? Oh, that's too bad. Bless your heart. And women will feel tremendously inadequate from those kind of questions. Now, perhaps the person asking questions like that really does want the good of the person they're talking to. Perhaps they feel genuinely bad for them or something like this. But we need to be very clear that Jesus Christ was a single man. He wasn't a single woman, in point of fact, but he was a single man. And he was the happiest man who ever lived. He was a totally fulfilled man. He lived life full, thro- full throttle excuse me, for the glory of God. We need to recognize that 1 Corinthians 7 speaks directly to singleness. And it doesn't say that we should feel pity for singles. Paul actually says that he wishes that everyone was as he is, single. What an interesting thing. Isn't that exactly the opposite of how we often have it? He praises singleness. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 that effectively you're set apart to live to God's glory, to the glory of Christ. You don't have the pressing concerns that dads and moms have. You are set apart for the glory of God. You're able to minister in the name of Jesus in a way that husbands and wives, fathers and mothers cannot. And Paul says that's a great state. That's not how the church often voices their view of this state, unfortunately. As I said, Jesus came as a single man to redeem single men and women and married men and women. Everyone, single or married, who is a Christian, who has trusted in the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior, believing on his atoning death and his life-giving resurrection. That's the gospel. Everyone who has believed on this gospel has immense worth in the kingdom of Christ and has purpose and meaning in their life. So, the church needs to be very clear that you do not become a biblical woman, a God-glorifying woman, when you get a ring on your finger. You are a God-glorifying boy or girl, Lord willing, and then as you mature, you are a God-glorifying man or woman. There is no, there's no lack of worth in you prior to marriage. 
And the church has to be very clear about this. Here's the deal, though. The culture has very much outshouted the church in heaping shame on unmarried women. It's not, listen to me, brothers and sisters, it's not the church that most makes women, single women or single men, feel inadequate. It's a sexualized culture. This is a culture that teaches you that your worth is based on being sexually desirable. This is what this culture is shouting at you and me, everybody, all of us, at every second. This is what the culture is telling. Let's just zero in on womanhood for a minute. This is what the culture is telling little girls by sexualizing their bodies. This is what the culture is telling little girls by giving them a kind of impossible ideal uh, to strive for. I'm not trying to say that it's sinful for little girls to necessarily play with Barbies. Don't hear me saying that. I don't think it is. I don't think it's a sin. But I will say that when when you hear uh, scientists tell us that a woman wouldn't be able to stand up if she actually had the physique of a Barbie doll, you have to recognize that there's a kind of cultural expectation being communicated to women there from very early girlhood. If a Barbie doll is given to a little girl and she's learning that this is the ideal of a woman, this is what makes you a woman, there's a message being communicated there that I am afraid probably does communicate to little girls more than we might know. That's not what womanhood is. That's not what gives you value. What, what gives you value is not being sexually desirous. What gives you value is being made in the image of God. The culture tries to tell girls that they have value when boys want them. Think of the celebrities that are placed before us. Think of uh, the, the beauty pageants we hear about. I'm not saying beauty pageants are wrong necessarily in and of themselves. I'm just trying to say. I'm trying to, I'm trying to put together pieces from our culture and say... When you're a little girl and you're seeing all these images and you're seeing all these pictures of womanhood and they, they don't, in many cases anyway, look the way the women around you necessarily look. And they look like kind of an impossible ideal to achieve. And then you connect that with masculine desire and, and you see these women, these celebrities, these figures being wanted by men, being hunted by men, effectively, what does that communicate to you? It communicates to you that your value is in your sexuality. And it's a lie. We're here to say, as a Christian counterculture, that's a lie. That's not where the value of womanhood is. The value of womanhood is not in conforming to some impossible ideal, literally an ideal that would make a woman fall over if she was shaped in such a way. The ideal of biblical womanhood is a woman who fears the Lord. That's where the beauty of womanhood is most seen. God creates the physical frame. God creates the shape and form of a woman just like he creates the shape and form of a man. We're not squeamish about this. We're not confused about it. We're not shy of saying such a thing. We know that God created manhood and God created womanhood. And Adam, as I said last night, was very excited about womanhood. He was not shy about it. He was not bashful about praising the Lord for the gift of his wife. There was tremendous joy and delight in marital union, in romance. It's a beautiful thing. And so God has made the, the physique of men and women. But God, in Proverbs 31, for example, zeroes into the beauty of biblical womanhood. And, and that text doesn't have anything to say about her dimensions. The text doesn't have a swimsuit modeling competition. The text doesn't have any of that. 
text says a woman who fears the Lord. A woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. Her worth is, her worth is better than rubies. Proverbs 31 says not. Not because she wins homecoming queen. But because she loves God. That's what, that's where the real dignity and beauty of womanhood lies. So we're not scared about talking about the physical differences between men and women. The church can be commonsensically obvious on these fronts. We can recognize that God creates what he creates for glory, his glory, and for our happiness. And we can revel in that. It is a beautiful thing when a young man and a young woman come together in marriage. That's really happy. And, and we, we receive that as a good gift of God. But we note that a woman's value is not in her sexual identity. And man, listen, it's gotten worse since when many of you and, and, and I were in high school and college. Uh, the culture has only gotten more visual, right? You know this, right? Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. This is a more visual culture than ever Boys are affected by this kind of culture, but you know who's especially affected by this? Young girls, girls, young women. They are more than ever trained to think that their value lies, again, in being beautiful in worldly terms and being wanted and being desired. And you and I as Christians have to lead them out of these lies and have to help them see that their value as a girl, as a young woman, does not come from being wanted sexually. It comes from being made in the image of God. Every father, every father should, should show his little girl every day that she lives that he loves her. Not because she makes him look good. Not because she's going to be homecoming queen or something. Uh, down the road. If she's homecoming queen, fantastic. I don't really care. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's not where her value is. Her value is, is in her being made specially by God. And that father is going to love her. He's going to love her no matter what. He's going to love her no matter what she looks like. He's gonna, he doesn't care. She's his little girl. I have two of them. Eight and two. And please hear me. I am very much trying to train my little girls to believe that every day. I am trying to show them that their father does not base their value in what they look like. And I'm trying to show them by extension that men shouldn't base their value in what they look like. So we have a lot of work to do in cultural terms, brothers and sisters. We have a lot to push against. We're not just like American culture. We don't just take American culture and baptize it. We are, as you've heard me say multiple times now, we're a different culture. We're the true culture. We're the city of God. People should enter this assembly, this congregation, and they should see men and women interacting differently than they see taking place in the world. They should see fathers treating their daughters differently than fathers treat their daughters in the world. They should see husbands reverencing their wives in a way that is different than husbands treat their wives in the broader culture. There should be a profound gospel difference in every church, not just this one, every single church constituted in the name of Jesus Christ. Part of the unique beauty of the church is that we have this beautiful vision of womanhood. And we know that a woman's value does not lie 
in a wedding ring. It lies in being made from God's own design. Point four, womanhood is a reverential reality. It's a reverential reality. You hear this in Titus 2.3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent. This is the only place this Greek word that's translated reverent, hieropopress, occurs in the New Testament. And it signifies a woman who is like a priestess. A woman who is like a priestess. This is very interesting to think about in terms of godly womanhood. Godly womanhood does not depend upon uh, your marital status, as you've heard me say. All women, all Christian women are to be marked out, Titus 2, 3, as reverent in behavior. So every woman, whether she's called to missions or whether she's called to ministry or she's supposed to teach a Bible study or not, every woman of God wants to strive to be mature in Jesus Christ. That is your goal. That's your goal in life. Every woman, you want to grow in godliness. You have a purpose. Your purpose is not found first and foremost in family status. Every Christian woman's purpose is found here. Older women are to train younger women to be reverent in behavior, to be holy. That's really what we're saying. To be like a priestess, like, like a woman who serves the Lord every minute of her existence. Christian, <clears throat> Christian women, excuse me, are not like worldly women. They're not those who watch all the same shows and use all the same words and go to all the same places. But have a little Christian twist at the end of things. They're not those who simply go to church on Sunday morning. Christian women are, are captivated by the gospel. They are seized by the grace of Jesus Christ. And they live a fundamentally different life than women who do not know Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is teaching us in Titus 2. You see examples of this kind of reverential behavior in the Old Testament. You see Bathsheba honoring David in 1 Kings 1. Or you think of Esther, the book of Esther. Esther has this respectful tone. She's mature, she's dignified, and she speaks to the king in Esther 5. And and her reverential, respectful tone wins his favor and ends up saving the Jews who were going to be slaughtered by the ministrations of wicked men in the book of Esther. So godly womanhood, godly womanhood is holy, and that holiness has power. We tend to think of holiness as weak, guy or girl, by the way. We tend to think of being a serious Christian as kind of a, a weak state, not really preferable. Um, I, we have a lot of young men and women pouring into the campus of Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, um, and it's a beautiful thing, but a lot of them have been trained at some level to think that the way they can really win people to Jesus is by being just like the world, but with a kind of Jesus twist. And so one of the behaviors that young people are called, are pulled toward today is kind of using like bad language, using cuss words. I saw this in my earlier seminary and I see it at, uh, at my school now. 
it's kind of a cool thing among the kind of young church planner crowd to show that, uh, that you're not one of those um, fussy Christians, you know, you're not one of those legalistic Christians, and so you're able to swear, for example. Um, and I, I'm around guys, I'm around a fair number of church planners and young Christian leaders who are guys, guy and girl alike, this is a temptation, but I'm just talking about, I'll, I'll switch over to church planners for a minute. And those church planners seem to think that they have cachet, they, they win a hearing by virtue of swearing, acting like the world, in other words. And nothing could be further from the truth. There is no gospel power in being like the world. Being like the world doesn't make you more like Jesus. And it doesn't draw people who want to be more like Jesus. You know who it draws? It draws people who want to be like the world. <laughs> it, wants, it draws people who want to be kind of Christian but worldly. That's who it draws. Guess what your church is going to look like? It's going to look like Christian but worldly. There is no evangelistic strategy in the New Testament mapped out for us where we start swearing and we start praising uh, everything the culture does so that the culture will like us. We're in this world. Uh, we're, not, we're not supposed to seal ourselves off from unbelievers. We know that Jesus went to sinners and tax collectors and even had dinner with them to the extent that people felt challenged by that. So yes, we break down boundaries. We can talk to normal people. We don't want to get in some kind of Christian bubble where we only talk a Christian language that only Christians can understand. I'm not saying that either. But I am saying when we are in the world... When we are trying to build real friendships with unbelievers, we are not trying to draw them into a way of life that is a kind of worldly Christianity. We're trying to be a real person, genuine, authentic, kind, loving, these sorts of things, but we do not think that we're going to win them to Jesus by swearing. If that's part of the, the evangelistic strategy, man, we have it dead wrong. We have it off. We are off. We're not trying to win them to gospel Christianity. We're trying to win them to something like worldly Christianity. And that's not what we're about. Christians should not be some sort of weird, six inches off the ground kind of race that can't interact with real people. And you do meet, sadly, some evangelicals like that. So I think it's totally good and appropriate to enjoy the good, non-sinful gifts of this world. I... Uh, for example, think it's great to appreciate different musical styles. I'll, I'll keep pressing in here for a minute. I like rap. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily guess that about me, being a nerdy white guy from Maine, but I enjoy rap music. I always did. I was in Maine. My classmates love country music. I've grown to appreciate country music over the years, but I liked rap when I was in high school. And rap has given me a, a bridge by which to engage Lost people. They, they think when I say I'm a Christian, you know, I'm engaging them in, in an airplane conversation or playing basketball with them at the Y or something like this. They think that if I'm a Christian, I must sort of hover outside of the world and not participate in anything the world normally does. And I'm like, I like rap, man. And then I may even, I may even rap for them just to show them, just to fully take their mind and blow it. No, uh, actually blow it by how bad a rapper I am. But anyway... I'm not trying to make a case then for Christians who can't engage real people. I am trying to say that what, what we fundamentally display to the world is not worldliness. It's holiness. And that's true for a godly woman. Women, you have a profound opportunity to show people around you that you are marked not by ungodliness, but by reverence, holiness, love of God. You're a woman. 
captivated by Jesus Christ. You have that opportunity everywhere you go. You don't need somebody to come alongside you and say, you're the next Beth Moore. You're the next this or that. You, just by virtue of being a godly woman, right where you are, two, two shoes on your feet, normal person, you can show people a profound difference. You can show what, what difference Christ makes. And part of how you do this is a posture of reverence toward the Lord, toward your husband, toward the church. Th- these are ways that you mark yourself off as different. Again, you're not a kind of separatistic, you know, uh, mean-spirited believer. (laughs) You're not zinging people because they're not just like you. You're happy. You're warm. You're friendly. You wear jeans like they do, okay? But you, you show the women around you that you're reverential. This is an interesting value to isolate in in 2016. We're in a kind of Miley Cyrus culture, aren't we? where women debase themselves on a regular basis. Men want it anyway. Men encourage it. Men have, men have been trained to be debased themselves and to ask women to debase themselves. You listen to, by the way, secular rap music, and it is nothing other than that. It's men wanting women to debase themselves, to take any dignity they have remaining and throw it away. This is the kind of culture we're in. We're in a culture where, you know, at major award shows and major events, you know, women do not obey uh, the Lord and they don't act reverentially. They don't act in a holy way. And that bleeds into the church and that encourages women to think that there's a kind of posture they should adopt that is worldly. But there's something profoundly different from a Miley Cyrus kind of culture where women have no dignity and there's no real womanliness about a woman. The Bible esteems womanhood The Bible thinks womanhood is beautiful. The Bible thinks godly women profoundly honor the Lord through a holy Christ-centered life. So there's a lot to think about along these lines. Point five, and we're rounding the corner to home. Womanly modesty is beautiful. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul says this, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul is not saying it's wrong to wear jewelry. He's not saying it's wrong to wear makeup, I don't think. My wife wears makeup, wears jewelry. Uh, Once in a while, she gets a dress from uh, J. Crew, or she got a bag recently from Madewell, this place called Madewell. What is with purses today? This, this bag she got is like this big. I said, is that your, what is that for? What, what are you carrying in there? She said, it's, it's that size. Hers is bigger. Hers is bigger than that. So you're, you're, you come in second place, but that's impressive as well. This new trend is big, big purses. She loves it. It's, it, it looks very nice on her in all seriousness. I do not necessarily understand it, but um, so I'm not saying, and I don't think the Apostle Paul is saying, that women never, you know, never do anything to look uh, beautiful, to look womanly. I think that's actually part of being a woman. But Paul is saying, profoundly, note this, that women clothe themselves in modesty and self-control. That's what, that's what they mark themselves by, modesty and self-control. They adorn themselves, first and foremost, not with the trappings of earthly beauty, 
but with good works. That's what is proper for women who profess godliness. So hear me again. Nobody's saying that it's wrong for a woman to dress in a womanly way. 1 Corinthians 11 calls for that. So we actually think that's great. We want a woman to, to enjoy being a woman. That's a beautiful thing. We are saying, though, that modesty is a forgotten virtue. It's a forgotten, it's a forgotten principle today. And we need to recover that as the church. We need to know that, you need to know as a man, that when you see a woman in public um, trying to present her body to men, for whatever reason, I don't know why she's doing it. You may not know why she's doing it. But that's actually not beautiful. It's not that she doesn't necessarily have a nice, nice frame or something like this. A beautiful face. But here's what true beauty is. We have a different understanding of beauty. Our understanding of beauty is grounded in God. God is the one who is most beautiful. And God's beauty is directly connected to holiness to virtue, to righteousness. God is not fundamentally beautiful because he looks good, because he's physically impressive. God is fundamentally beautiful in scripture. Think of Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We hear, we hear uh, the angels cry. God is fundamentally most beautiful because he is totally holy. He's perfectly holy. There's no shadow of sin or wrongdoing in God. And that's why he is a beautiful God. What does that say then about earthly beauty? It doesn't eviscerate it. It doesn't say there's no such thing as earthly beauty. In fact, the Bible actually praises different people in uh, Scripture who pop up as beautiful. We know that Esther was beautiful. Beautiful of face, beautiful in form. We know that David was handsome, for example. Those are just two examples. So we're not trying to say there's no such thing as earthly beauty, physical human beauty. There is such a thing. We are trying to say that it pales in comparison to divine beauty. The beauty that should really captivate us every day, the beauty that every man and every woman should really focus on every single day is divine beauty. That's what's most important. Not what we look like. What you look like in the mirror every morning is not the most important part of your day. It's what God looks like. That's what's most important for the Christian. Our beauty, whatever we have, most of it don't have very much, is going to fade. (laughs) If we do have some measure of beauty for some time, it doesn't usually last. American culture is hell-bent on preserving its beauty as long as it can. It is desperate to preserve earthly physical beauty. It's not just desperate to preserve it, but to cultivate it, to spend thousands of dollars reshaping the face, reshaping the, the structure, the form of the body, all for some ideal that's fading. It doesn't last. Even if you're the most beautiful person who walks the face of the earth, you get what? A few decades where you really shine as a beautiful person? And, you know, as you see in Hollywood, for example, guy and girl alike, one minute you're the it thing, you're, you know, people's sexiest man, people's sexiest woman, or whatever the, the award is, just a few years later, you're forgotten. And there's some new, hot, young thing who's come along and displaced you. So what I'm trying to say is, even if you're in the big leagues of beauty, and you can compete there, and you can win awards and crowns and be voted most desirable, just give it 
Just give it three decades and it's gone. And that goes by in a blink. It's gone. Never to be regained. It's done. Here's what Christians can focus on then. We can focus on divine beauty. That's never going to fade. There's a, there's a distinct beauty of God-likeness that Christians alone can see. The world can't see it. The world can't appreciate it. But when Jesus saves you, you are given a hunger and a thirst for the beauty of God. And that means you love holiness more than anything else. And that means for a lot of women who have been raised in a beauty-focused culture, earthly beauty-focused culture, that that diminishes for you. It's not that you it's not that you have to not care about your appearance. I'm not saying that. You can, you can present yourself well, I think, according to Scripture. You have, you have people in Scripture who do that. But it does mean that your priorities shift and change. You're no longer desperate to be seen as attractive. You're not desperate anymore because God loves you. Your value and your worth is found in God loving you and washing you clean of your sin. You don't have to worry about what your co-workers think about you. You don't have to worry about what men think about you when they see you in the mall. You don't have to worry about, you know, whether the people in your family are honored by the way you look. Modesty is beautiful. Your value is in God. Your value is God defined. When Jesus saves you, he, he effectively makes you beautiful because he enables you to be holy. We have a lot to say about beauty in a culture that's obsessed with it, in a culture where women especially feel tremendous and ungodly pressure to change their face, change their body, look as young as possible for as long as possible. Women can, can feel that pressure in a tremendous way. I'm not saying it's wrong for a woman to present herself like a woman. I think there's gray area here. I am just trying to say what the culture is saying to women is fundamentally full of lies. It's full of lies. And modesty is beautiful in the church. Last point, womanhood means agency. There are all kinds of women in scripture who do all kinds of things for the glory of God. Let me just give you a short selection of them. Joanna in Luke 8 gave great sums of money to Christ's band of disciples. Prisca helped her husband Aquila in Acts 18 disciple Apollos. Timothy had both a godly mother and a grandmother who trained him in the faith. You see that in 2 Timothy 1. Tabitha in Acts 9 was full of good works and acts of charity. Lydia and Mary in Acts 12 and 16 hosted gatherings of Christians. They were very hospitable. Phoebe was a servant of the church in Romans 16 who served many people, including the Apostle Paul. Junia and Appia in Romans 16 and Philemon 2 partnered with their husbands in gospel ministry, doing evangelism or, or again, hospitality. Mary, Anna, and other women in Scripture prayed reverentially effectually. You see that in Luke 1 and 2. This is just a brief survey. What I'm trying to say is this. People try to make out biblical womanhood to rob women of agency, to make women uh, meaningless, to leave them with nothing to do but be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And it's the exact opposite when you go to scripture. You see godly women 
turning the world upside down. You see godly women contributing to the work of the church, the work of the gospel in countless ways. They do all sorts of things. That's what I'm trying to say by this little survey. They do tons of things for the glory of Christ. It's not that godly women have too little to do in the church. It's that they have too much to do. Women, whatever your status in life, whatever your age, wherever you are in life, there is all sorts of work that Jesus has for you to do. You can be hospitable at any age, at any marital status. You can love children. You can babysit children. You can raise children. You can nurture children in all sorts of ways. You can support the work of the ministry. You can be in a Bible study. You can lead a Bible study. You can evangelize women in your neighborhood. There is tons of stuff you can do. You can serve the church. You can bake stuff for the church. You can, you can love your pastor in different ways. You can support your pastor's wife in different ways. Many couples in ministry uh, have very little time off. It can look like maybe pastors and Christian leaders have all sorts of time for themselves. It's not true. One major blessing the church body can give, women can give, pastors and couples in ministry, is to babysit their children and give them a date night you would not believe the miracles that date night can work, right? For young couples who are raising children uh, in the thick of it. This is just a sampling of godly womanhood in scripture. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Biblical womanhood does not look weak. It doesn't look like women have nothing to do when you actually go to the scripture. When Jesus captures a woman, he captivates her with his beauty and he gives her gospel work to do in his name. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for these women. I pray that you would enable them by the power of your Holy Spirit to be a counterculture in this city, in this region. I pray, Father, that you would use them as a light to other women. So many women are being drawn off and even led to hell by terrible untruths and lies about womanhood. They're being encouraged. They're being encouraged, Lord, to think that earthly beauty is everything and that being desired by a man is what gives them worth. And Father, this is not the truth. This is not your truth. So I pray that this church and other gospel preaching churches in Jefferson City and this area would call sinners, every person, man and woman alike, to repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ and would show them that there is something better than worldly esteem, and that is being known and loved by God, by you. In Jesus' strong name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so that was session one. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back with biblical manhood. So take a 10, 15? 10-minute 10 10 break. That's all you get. Of 2013, 20% were unemployed. That is a massive jump. 20% in 2013, the highest percentage of unemployed men ever recorded. In our time, the out-of-wedlock birth rate, children born to an unmarried man and woman, is more than 40%. 40%. More than 40% of all children born are born out of wedlock. In 1960, only 11% of children in America lived apart from their dad. So you take, you take 10 kids, line them up against a wall, young kids, only one of them lives apart from his father or her father. In 2010, the number is this, 27%. So instead of one child out of 10 living apart from dad, young child, boy or girl, now basically three out of 10 live apart from dad. Men are volatile. 
people often present men as emotionally sphinx-like, you know, sort of impenetrable, the kind of John Wayne man, right? He doesn't feel anything. Once in a while, you know, he gets mad and then he shoots somebody in the street dead. But other than that, other than that, he's not volatile at all. That's the opposite of the truth. You want to know how much more suicides there are, men to women? Men commit suicide 3.5 times more than women. Now, you see, here's where you start to see where the zero-sum competition between the sexes is so problematic. It's problematic in part, I mean, it's problematic on many fronts, right? First of all, because it's not true. It shouldn't be the way it is. But it's problematic in part because when boys struggle, when boys struggle and then grow up without any training in manhood, at a far greater rate than women, for whatever reason, I don't know exactly what, they commit almost four times more suicides than women. It's kind of the opposite, isn't it? We think of men as stable and women as, you know, emotionally tumultuous or something like this. In truth, it's the men who are volatile and it's the women who are more stable. That's what these stats seem to tell us. Men aren't these sphinxes walking around, impenetrable, undisturbed by the world, but, you know, once in a while they get mad. Men are struggling horribly today. This is what I'm trying to tell you. This is not good. This isn't about elevating men over women. This is just saying men are in crisis. Men are struggling terribly today. One writer said it this way about the nature, the volatile nature of manhood. When women get upset, this is according to stereotypes, but when women get upset, they eat ice cream and take a bath. When men get upset, they drink beer and try to kill someone. It's a overplay. It's a generalization, but there's some truth there too. There's some truth there. You could say it this way. Men seem unprotected and forgotten today. Seven million men just dropped out of the workforce in the last few years. And it's not even a talking point, really, for our presidential candidates. It's not a problem. A feminist culture, in part, sees the struggles of men as, in effect, good. Because men are getting their just desserts. Men kept women down, now men have it tough. So that's good. Here's what the church has to say about this. It's not good that either sex would struggle. It's not good that women would be in trouble and struggling. And it's not good that men would be in trouble and struggling. Neither one is good. Christians Christians aren't rooting for one sex or the other. Christians want both men and women to flourish. That's what God wants. That's what the gospel creates. The gospel creates health in a man and health in a woman. Stability in a man, stability in a woman. Worth in a man, worth in a woman. It's not one sex flourishes and the other gets trampled. That's the way the culture plays it. That's what the culture does. And guess what? You do look at American history, you look at world history, and you can find definite evidence of chauvinism and unhelpful, harmful man-centeredness. You can find it in history. It's there plain as day. So it's tragically true that we can believe that the sexes are in competition and the church needs to be a witness to the fact that this is not the case. This is not true. So with all this said, what do men need? What do men need today? What's the silver bullet for these men who are killing themselves, not finding work, not united to their children, not married, and struggling? 
What's the solution? The solution is what it has always been. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look now at four ways in which the gospel transforms men. First, the gospel saves men. (laughs) Fundamentally, the gospel saves sinners, guy and girl alike. We think of a text like 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, 1 Timothy 1.15. More than a pat on the head, an economically strong home, four weeks of vacation a year, here is what every sinner needs. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the grave in triumph over death. That's what every guy needs. Every girl needs, but here we're focusing on manhood. So every guy needs it. More than anything else, that's what men need. We need the gospel because apart from it, we will suffer forever in hell. The first reason men and every sinner needs the gospel is because hell is real and because judgment is coming. And we deserve judgment for our sin. There is no person out there who is a good person. There is no person out there who is outside of Jesus Christ going to, you know, play their cards just right such that they deserve divine favor. Every single sinner, tragically, it's hard to say these words, but it's true. According to scripture, every sinner merits eternal punishment in hell. Hell is not time limited. Hell is not limited in any nature. Hell is eternal. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ go there for eternity and they are punished by a just God. The gospel, before it is good news, is bad news. It's very, very bad news because it tells us that we are not okay. We do not have it all figured out. We are not all right outside of Jesus Christ. We are destined for damnation. That's what the gospel tells us. But here's the good news. And here's why it's good news. Here's why it's incredibly good news. God has not left us in that state. God has sent Jesus Christ into the world so that we can be saved from hell and live forever with God, knowing him, treasuring him, worshiping him. So when God saves us, please note this, he doesn't simply save us from hell. He saves us for himself. He saves us For himself. You see, the good part of the gospel is not that, the the best part of the gospel is not that you get out of hell, it's that you get God. It's that you get God. This is a God centered gospel that we preach. We sometimes deal with this in the church because kids will wonder if heaven is going to be boring. The youth group will frequently give you a version of that question Is heaven going to be boring? We're going to like play harps all day and sit on clouds and, you know, sing soft praise and worship songs for all the live long day. Is that really going to be a good place to go? Here's fundamentally why heaven is going to be a good place. It's not because there's no pain and tears and these sorts of things fundamentally. The fundamental reason why heaven is such a good place, the new heavens and the new earth is going to be such a good place to live for the Christian is because God is there. That's why heaven is so good. If people want to go to heaven because their puppy's going to be there, or they're going to be reunited with their beloved grandparents, or the family's going to be back together, or they think it's going to be a husband and wife bond for eternity, 
I fear that you may have a deficient understanding of heaven. The focus of heaven is not on it being just like the world, only a lot better. The focus of heaven in the scripture is that the lamb, Jesus Christ, is the light of the city of God. That's what makes heaven so all-consumingly awesome. It's that you love Jesus now, and you're going to be freed of your sin to love him for all eternity in heaven. That is why heaven is such a good deal. It's because you get to love Jesus. It's because you get to love God. It's because nothing stands in the way of you and God. Here, you and I have to battle to love God, don't we? Do you? I do. Full stop. It's hard to get up in the morning And read the Bible. It's hard to find time to pray. It's hard, on at least some Sundays, to really get my heart going for worship. Worship with, you know, the people of God. It's hard to want to be holy at different points in the week. What is it easy to do, by contrast? Is it easy to sin? Is it easy for me, not necessarily to sin, but to devote myself to lesser things? I don't usually have trouble, personally, working myself up to watch a basketball game. This is just me, personally. That's not hard. It's hard for me to read scripture and pray. I have to give effort to it. I have to work at it by the grace of God. I have to pray for the the hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Is this true of you? True of anybody else? I have to pray for that hunger. And that thirst. I have to ask God to help me. How weak I am. I don't have to pray to enjoy basketball or football or the things I enjoy that aren't of God. Those things aren't sinful. I don't think they're sinful. But it shows, it shows me where my heart is when I see that it's no trouble at all to go to the latest Jason Bourne movie. That's not hard. I don't have to pray and fast. Oh, give me strength to go to Jason Bourne. I can go to Jason Bourne any day of the week and enjoy it and love that movie. Uh, it's awesome. There's no trouble there. Here's where there is trouble. Reading the word of God. Praying for my kids. Praying for my wife. Reaching out to my neighbors in a gospel-shaped way. That's hard. That's hard for my wife and I. We talk about it in our neighborhood. Same neighborhood I mentioned last night. It's not easy. There's nothing easy about going outside and telling neighbors who love their lives, or at least think they do, that they are totally lost without Jesus Christ. That I have to pray about. Do you have to pray about that? Anybody else? Do you have to pray about that? It's hard to be a light to your coworkers. Forget even just full-fledged gospel presentation. It can be hard just to, just to be a holy witness at work, can it? People around you cuss. People around you live like the devil. People around you are sleeping around. It's not necessarily easy to be a Christian there. You can be sucked into that. You can be pulled into that. You can start adopting those habits. It's not necessarily easy. What is easy? It's easy to go there and be like them. That's not hard. Nobody has trouble sinning. Nobody says, ah, I have been working my way into a righteous frenzy so that I would say unkind words to my wife or my husband and my kids. I would cut them down where they stand and it just won't come out. Right? It comes naturally to be weak. It comes naturally to give in to the flesh, doesn't it? For everybody, guy and girl, it comes natural. Nobody, nobody has to pray and fast in order to, to have the strength, the power to commit sin or to be drawn off by worldly things. That comes naturally. 
Here's why we need the gospel. Every person, not just at the moment of conversion. We need the power of God in us to turn away from wickedness, to put off the old man, Colossians 3, 1 through 11, to put off the old man and put on the new. That's what we need. That's what men need desperately. I say men in particular because it's a session on men. It's true of every sinner. True of every sinner, every day of every, of, of, of every hour you get. <laughs> it's true. Men need it, I think, though, because there's more of a doctrine of strong womanhood on offer in the culture today than there is a doctrine of strong manhood. Men have been told to essentially sit back and not really do much and basically be a passive person. And men need to hear that the gospel brings us to God and calls us, calls us to kill our sin. We need to hear this today. Men need this message. Men think that they need time to fish and hunt. Men think that they need time to play sports and watch sports. Men think that they need something from their family that they're not getting. Okay, there can be real imbalances in life, let that be said. There can be. But here is the fundamental need of every man, every sinner. We inexhaustibly need Jesus. Inexhaustibly, we need Jesus. There is never a point in any man's life where he says, Oh, I hit it. Honey, I hit the mark the other day. I got all the Jesus I needed I don't need any more. I got all the grace I need. My tank is full. This is good. This is a good state. I don't need any more. Every man, every day needs more grace, more of God, more of Jesus. We need more power for godliness. We need more strength to live righteously. Too many men live a defeated life. Too many men are content to stay put where they are. Men love ritual, don't they? Um, it can be confusing to my wife. My wife does not seem to understand that I love the food that she makes. And if she will just keep making the things that she makes that I love most, I will be a happy man. She, she makes me chocolate chip scones. Okay? I don't know why I love chocolate chip scones. I love chocolate chip scones. Okay? I love chocolate chip scones. And uh, you, can, you can see this coming out of me right now. And... I will, she'll make a batch for me and I'll eat it and I'll want another batch. You know, she puts it in the freezer so I can unfreeze the scones and eat. The, I feel like I'm sharing too much here. Okay, anyway, um, what I want is more of that. I, I'm, a, I'm a guy of, of ritual. I think a lot of men are ritual oriented. We like the same patterns. I read once about the Major League Baseball commissioner, Bud Selig who ate the same breakfast, he went to the same restaurant every single day for something like 30 to 40 years. He ate the same eggs, the same toast. Here's toast once more. Toast is the sub-theme of the session. He drank the same coffee in the same place, and he had his same friends in that place, and they would talk about, you know, the world and baseball and politics and putting everything to rights. And I thought, that makes sense. 
Not every guy's like that, but a lot of guys are like that. Here's the deal, though. There can be a dark side to this, can't there? Because you can get into habits and rituals and never get out of them. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to break up our lives, storm in, and take dominion of us. We have in the church, in the modern American evangelical church, a weak, soft Jesus. We want a Jesus. We ask for a Jesus who always just makes our life better. We want a Jesus who tells us how great we are and doesn't really ask much more of us. We want a Jesus who tucks us into bed at night and gives us the best hot cocoa that's ever been brewed. That's the Jesus we want. We don't want Jesus to challenge us. We don't want Jesus to call us to something that we don't want to do. We want a Jesus who is nice, neat, safe, and tame. And Jesus is none of those things. C.S. Lewis said it so well. He is not a tame lion. Speaking of Aslan and his Narnia Chronicles, he's not a tame lion. You follow Jesus, you better hold on as tight as you can because Jesus will take you places you never thought you would go. I was talking to missionaries earlier today, missionaries here, and I've talked to missionaries over the years, and that is so often their testimony. But that's the testimony of every Christian. It's actually not just true of those who are in ministry. It's true of every believer Jesus takes you places you didn't know you were going. Jesus has a plan for your life that is sometimes the opposite of the life plan you drew up for yourself. You didn't intend to be where you are necessarily, but you're trying to follow Jesus and you are where you are. Here's the good news. If you're following Jesus, that's where you're supposed to be. That is tremendously comforting. Lay the blame for where your life is going and the interesting route it's taking on Jesus. I said that in the best of terms. (laughs) With the best of meanings, intentions. Jesus takes you where he wants to go. And where you end up going may not be where you thought you were going to go. This may not have been the life you thought you were going to have. Brothers and sisters, I grew up in New England. I had no plans of going to Washington, D.C., Chicago, Louisville, Kentucky, and Kansas City. I knew of all these cities. I watched many of their sports teams play on TV and thought they were cool. I remember Bo Jackson snapping the bat over his leg. I thought that was incredible insanely cool. I still intend on getting a Bo Jackson jersey during my time in Kansas City. But I digress. I never thought I would be here. I did not intend to be a seminary professor teaching theology. I don't, there are many days where I think, what am I doing? Where, what am I doing? I'm being paid to teach theology? I thought I was going to be a pastor in New England. I thought actually before that I was going to be a history teacher and a basketball coach. And there's a part of me that would love to do that. I'd love to be a basketball coach. That would be so stinking fun. But here I am. And here you are. Here you are. You're where you are because God called you to be there. You see, Jesus is not a safe and tame savior. And men need to know this about Jesus. I think that's actually a draw to Jesus for a lot of men. He's not the kind of neat and prissy savior that they have heard. He is is a dude who has fire in his eyes. Go to John 1 and learn a little bit about Jesus. What is Jesus like? Does Jesus come in, set up a table, give you all your life options, walk you through them, ask you to select the plan you'd most enjoy, and then figure out how you can get there over the long haul? Is that your Jesus? Is that the Jesus of John 1? Here's the Jesus of John 1. He goes up to a bunch of fairly rough dudes, many of them fishermen. I grew up around lots and lots of fishermen in Maine. You know, it's tough work. You work the seas for a living. That's not an easy living. You go out there, 
You try to trap lobsters. You try to catch salmon. Try to catch cod. That's very New England. It's a hard work. It's a hard, hard day's work. Jesus went to those kind of men and in several cases said nothing more than two words, according to John. Follow me. Follow me. Sometimes men are faulted for being of few words. We're not incommunicative. I mean, excuse me, we're not communicative. We don't say as much as we should. Jesus says two words, and these guys are called to follow him on the spot. Think about that. Think about what that tells you about Jesus. I mean, seriously, you guys, think about this. Somebody comes up to you and says, follow me on the spot. Not a long justification, not a life plan that stretches here to there. No insurance mentioned. And you're supposed to follow them? That's who our Lord is. That's who Jesus is. Jesus has the rights. Jesus is divine. That's why Jesus can do this. But wow, what a picture of Jesus that is. What an awesome picture of Jesus. What a man. (laughs) He goes to people and he says to follow him. And they do. They follow him. You know how far they follow him? They follow him all the way to death. Many of the apostles. According to scripture and tradition. 11 of the 12 apostles end up dead because of ministry. How's that for a life plan? You think your life has taken some twists and turns? Jesus, in earthly terms, ruined the lives of his apostles. He ruined them. Because then and now, what is life supposed to be? Nice, neat, safe, tame. You're supposed to get a life plan that makes sense. It's supposed to lock in. You're supposed to give the max contribution to your IRA. This is supposed to work out. At 65, you're supposed to be on a beach somewhere. You're supposed to get the good life, man. This is Jesus. This is God. There's a whole school of thought called prosperity theology out there. It's on TBN every morning, every day. You can hear it right now. You go home and turn it on. And it's all about making your life better. And the Jesus they offer is just that kind of Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mess your life up, doesn't ask you to sacrifice, doesn't call you to Put your sin to death, but makes your life better. That's a Jesus that causes no offense. That's a Jesus that doesn't pose any problems for our life plan. The Jesus of the Bible is the opposite. The Jesus of the Bible calls you to follow him. Listen to me. Listen to this. And you may end up crucified upside down in his name. Eleven of the twelve apostles martyred. What kind of Jesus is this? This is a Jesus who, whose whole ministry is predicated on this. This life is not your best life. This is not your best life now. This life may be great. I'm not saying everybody's life is as hard as it possibly can be. I'm not saying that most Christians are called to martyrdom. I actually think that most Christians probably aren't called to martyrdom. So don't mishear me. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying we should embrace and ask for all the suffering we can get. I'm not saying that either. I am saying, though, that when you follow Jesus, you have no idea where he's taking you. No idea. And he is not obligated to provide you anything but eternal salvation. Those are the terms. Because when you follow Jesus, who knows what your life now is going to be like. You are going to reign and rule with him, worshiping the Lamb who is the light of the city of God for all eternity. That is your best life. That is what you want. 
You want to live for heaven and not for earth. And all of that is, is activated by the gospel of grace. When you follow Jesus in faith, when you give up your sin and you turn your back on the world and you follow Jesus, you set your face like a flint to follow him. That is what you're going to get. You're going to get Jesus and you're going to get eternal life and you're going to get God. The world does not comprehend this plan. This is never going to sound good to the fallen human being, our fallen nature. But to those who are the called of God, this is going to sound like life itself. We're going to recognize that this is what we need. And men will respond, I think, to the preaching of this gospel. Because I think men inherently want a challenge. Men don't want a nice, neat, and tame life. Most of them, anyway. Many men want a challenge. Many men want a call. And that, interestingly, is what Jesus gives the men who become his apostles and his disciples. Follow me. Follow me now. Follow me forever. Follow me on the way of the cross. Follow me unto death. That's what Jesus is saying to them, and that's what he's saying to you and to me. As I say, the world has its own plan for life. Jesus likes to take, Jesus likes to take the least of these. He goes to humble men, and he makes them his apostles. Jesus does not go to the local university, to the local cadre of PhDs, those who have impressive titles and are on all the right local committees and say, come with me. You're the impressive. You're the highborn. You drive a Cadillac. Come with me. Jesus likes to go to humble folks. Jesus saves sinners of all kinds. But the world is very different. The world loves to pick winners and losers. The world loves to pick winners and losers. Some of you have experienced this. You were told by a teacher or a coach, somebody out there, that you were never going to make it. You were never going to, you know, amount to anything. You heard, you heard somebody say that. Or you had it communicated to you by folks in your life. You see, worldly people like that. Worldly people like to stack the, against, stack the deck against one another, excuse me. But there is no low-worth individual in the kingdom of God. God does not pick losers in his kingdom. God calls every person of every type and every ability level to follow him. And this is true for men. Point two, the gospel makes us hate our sin. The gospel makes men hate their sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Colossians 3 verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I was playing basketball a few years ago in Kentucky. It was at a local court, and I saw a dad playing with his son. And initially I thought, that's, that's good, that's sweet, dad playing with his boy. Needs to be a lot more of that in the world. Great. And then, as I watched the game unfold... I saw the dad blocking his little boy's shots. Every time this little boy would shoot, dad would stuff it. Now, there is a place for a dad, you know, stuffing his, his son's shot, okay? Um, you know, you got to teach the kid to 
be tough and these sorts of things. I firmly believe that. But this, this dad literally would not let his son get a shot off. And I was having a tough time watching it. <laughs> I wanted to go over to this dude and punch him in the arm and say, stop being an idiot to your boy. You're going to crush him. Let him make a basket on you. If, you're, if your ego is that weak, bro, I, I don't know how you're making it in the world. Because it's okay for your son to score on you. Here's the deal, though. I'm not that dissimilar from that dad in my flesh. We all are selfish by nature. Men struggle greatly, I think, in general, with selfishness. When God saves us, he does not give us a makeover. This is not extreme makeover, spiritual version. God, as Steve Lawson has said, executes a takeover. It's not a makeover. It's a takeover. The gospel makes us hate our sin. The gospel makes us hate, as men, our selfishness. The gospel makes us hate our weakness. The gospel makes us want to, like a hunter in the woods, track down our sin. We're tracking it all day. We track it, track it, track it, track it. And then when we find it, we put it to death. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 11. Put your flesh to death. There's one thing in the world you're allowed to murder as a man and as a Christian, and it's sin. That's what you're allowed to murder. This is the shape of Christian discipleship. We want to be men who are not passive about our sin. Many men have taken their cues today. They have been told that they should sit back. They shouldn't raise their voice. They should use an inside voice. They should be like little girls in the way they behave at school. Um, they, I, I read a, a piece online about men on the subway who spread their legs apart. It's called man-spreading. <laughs> it's an actual thing, man-spreading. Uh, feminists are protesting this. Men are not supposed to be like men. They're not supposed to really look like men. Uh, you go to your local pool and you see all sorts of men who, ha- who now apparently feel bad about chest hair. It's wrong to have chest hair, so you've got to wax yourself to look like some sort of well-oiled dolphin, this kind of thing. Men have been told that they shouldn't be manly. They shouldn't smell like men. They shouldn't act like men. They shouldn't talk like men. To raise your voice in a masculine way on a university campus is to, is to trigger people, these sorts of things. This is the culture we're in. We are in an anti-man kind of culture. And recently, a New York Times piece gave voice to just how unmanly we're supposed to be. This is a piece on modern manhood on the New York Times website. Here's what the author said. On occasion, it was trying to chart a new way to be a man. On occasion, the modern man is the little spoon with his wife. He's not the big spoon. He's the little spoon. This is actual language that was used in public. I'm sorry to quote it, but I have to. On occasion, the modern man is the little spoon. Some nights when he is feeling down or vulnerable, he needs an emotional and physical shield. Here's another point that this piece made. The modern man has no use for a gun. He doesn't own one, and he never will. Here's another point. The modern man cries. He cries often. And it goes on and on. Now, let's be clear about this. You've already heard me say that men should have an emotional life. It's not wrong for a man to feel deeply. That's right. Jesus felt deeply. The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty four. Jesus wept. It's not wrong for a man to weep. Jesus lost his friend, his dear friend, and he wept over it. So we're not saying that men shouldn't feel emotion. Men should feel emotion. 
It's right to feel emotion. It's right to weep at the death of a loved one. But we should also note that this kind of presentation is reshaping manhood. It's making men to be what women traditionally have been like. It's making men weak. It's saying that it's wrong for a man to have the instinct to protect his family, to own a gun. These are ideas that we can't receive, we can't accept. The gospel does not make us soft men. The gospel does not make us weak. It doesn't rob us of testosterone. The gospel puts our testosterone to work in service to Jesus Christ. It calls men to use whatever agency we have, whatever strength we have for the good of God and man. So we're not supposed to become less of a man. We don't get a shot in the neck when we get saved such that we act 40% less like a man. The gospel calls us to use whatever manly strength and ability we have for the glory of God and the betterment of others. That's what it means to be a godly man. Point three, the gospel lifts up our head and makes us more than conquerors. Romans eight thirty-five to 37, the apostle Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the gospel makes every Christian, guy or girl, more than a conqueror. The Apostle Paul, at the time that he writes these words that I just read you, is facing the, the threat of certain death. He is being persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he writes these words as a Christian and as a man. And we note, we note what he says. We are more than conquerors. There's a lot of men out there who live with a chip on their shoulder. But that chip isn't actually what it seems to be. It's not actually deep-rooted self-confidence. It's insecurity. It's fear. It's fear of being exposed. It's fear of being seen as weak. Here's Here's what the gospel does in us. Here's what the Holy Spirit does in us. It makes us more than conquerors so that we don't fundamentally need to look good. We don't need the world to applaud us. It doesn't matter whether the world applauds us. It doesn't matter whether people think we're tough or strong or whatever it may be. What matters to us is that God loves us and God knows us and God has called us to live for his glory. That's what we need. That's what so many men out there don't have. They live in insecurity, lack of confidence, fear of being exposed, fear of being shamed. And so they project that onto other people and they try to be strong and tough. And in reality, they're weak. But the gospel helps men to see that we are, in fact, weak. We're not God. <laughs> We're not Jesus. We don't have it all figured out. We're not in, a, in an impressive beauty pageant here, trying to look the strongest. We're trying to be the most Christ-like. That's what the godly man is trying to be. Jesus said in John 4 that it was his food to do his Father's will. That was his food That's what sustained him. That's what gave him purpose and meaning and passion and life. And that speaks to all of us as a church. And that speaks to men as well. We need to be fearless men. 
we should not fear the world. There is a great deal of man-fearing and politics playing today in our world. It's now common for men in leadership to lead from behind. I remember President Obama standing up in public on TV and saying, not too long ago, when asked about our strategy to defeat ISIS, we don't have a strategy. We don't have a strategy. That's what the President of the United States of America said. You have terrorists who are radicalizing American citizens through the internet, training them to be terrorists in this country, and who in fact are actually carrying through with their training. San Bernardino, right? The mental health facility, not too long ago, where there was a terrorist attack and um, uh, numerous people were killed. That's a ISIS-trained terrorist attack. Just last week, right, there was an attack in New York, and there have been other attacks. You can't keep up with the attacks. These attacks are in some way, many of them, related to Islamic terrorism. They're in some way related, many of them, to ISIS. The president of the free world, the one who presides over the fiercest military superpower the world has ever known, goes on live TV, beamed all over the world, including, I assume, to ISIS stations, ISIS, you know, devices, and tells everybody, everybody, he has no strategy to defeat people who are blowing other American citizens up, who are getting a knife, and in the name of Allah, trying to stab people to death who are getting guns, contraband guns, and killing people with them. You have no strategy by which to defeat terrorists? This, my dear friends, gives us a very poignant picture of men in 2016. You're the leader of the free world, and you have no strategy to defeat those who are targeting your own citizens, this is your flesh and blood. This is your country. And you have nothing to offer us. And you do us the favor of telling our enemies you have no strategy. My dear friends, I raise this only because that is a perfect, sparkling picture of what it means to lead from behind. Leadership that is no leadership at all. Leadership that leaves you worse than having no leader at all. This is a failure of manhood. When you hear a leader like that, when you have anybody in any leadership position stand up, maybe it's not as high stakes as that, and say, we don't really know where we're going. We don't really have a strategy. We don't really have a plan. You, you are hearing a failure of manhood. When there's a dad in a home who has no plan for his family, you, you go to him, you say, dad, Father, what, what's your plan to, you know, shield your children from the influence of Satan who would love to tear them limb from limb and destroy them spiritually in hell forever? 
what's your plan for your marriage? Because Satan would love to destroy that. He would love to get you divorced and hating one another. That would be a victory on his part. What's your strategy for training your whole family, for leading your whole family? You don't, you're not necessarily, you know, a pastor or a preacher, but what is your strategy for leading your family to know Christ and savor and treasure Jesus above all things when the world is pulling at you from every corner? What's your plan? We don't have a plan. There's no strategy. You have no strategy by which you're going to defend your kids. You have no plan by which you're going to safeguard your marriage. You have no plan by which you're going to lead these precious ones God has given you to know Jesus Christ with every fiber of your being that's within you. You have no plan. You see, it's not just a critique of presidential leadership we can offer on this point. Many of us are indicted here. Many of us are indicted here. This is true for single men and women. <laughs> we don't have a plan. You don't have a plan that you're, by which you're going to trust Jesus and follow him. You're just going to kind of be listless and, you know, sad. No, you need a plan. Every Christian of every type needs a plan <laughs> by which they are going to walk all the way to glory and see Jesus face to face. We need plans. But listen. We need men to lead out in the home and the church. God calls men to be the head of their wife. We know from Genesis 3.16 that Eve's desire is going to be for her husband. That same formulation grammatically is used in Genesis 4 when the Lord says to Cain, just before Cain picks up a tool and kills his brother with it, sin's desire is for you. In other words, sin wants to master you. So we know through the curse that a woman wants to master and rule her husband. But a godly husband is not going to fight his wife off from that effect. A godly husband is going to love his wife, Ephesians 5.25, and he's going, to, he's going to give himself up for her. He's going to lead her well. He's going to plan a vision for the family. He may not have a seminary degree. He may not be a ministry. He may not be a deacon or an elder. He may never be any of those things, but no godly man, no godly man, should let himself off the hook for, for not having a plan for his family. Every godly man should have a plan by which he's going to strengthen his marriage by the grace of Jesus Christ. Every godly man should have a plan by which he's going to lead his children to know the Lord by the grace of God. God has to work there, but he's going to try. There's nothing fancy about this. When a man simply reads the scripture with his family, talks about it for even five minutes around the dinner table or the breakfast table, and then leads the family in a prayer. And other people can pray in the family too. He doesn't have to be, you know, self-possessive about this. But he leads, he leads, he leads. That's all we're talking about. That's leadership in the home. It's not, it's not fancy. It's not sitting your kids down for, you know, nine hours of training per day in biblical theology. It's, it's opening the scripture. It's praying with your wife, your kids. It's leading them to know the Lord. That, in even a very simple form, is what we're talking about. I think that is Christ-like headship. 
That is Christ-like leadership. And we need to know this. This is my last point. The gospel calls us to sacrificial service. The gospel calls men to sacrificial service. Men, again, need this kind of challenge. It's hard to give men this challenge, actually. It's tough because publishers say, you know, that men are the ones who won't buy the books. Women will buy books by the bushel on how to grow as a godly woman. Women fuel the publishing industry in evangelical circles. Women will buy book after book and read it, read them, about what it means to be a godly woman. You deserve a ribbon, a medal, if you get men to read books about godly manhood. Because in many cases, men won't buy them. Men won't pick them up. Men will just assume that everything is great. And, and they're just going to keep on trucking. Eh, everything's good. Nothing's, nothing's on fire in the, in the family. I'm not going to read a book. I'm, you're going to tell me about all the ways I need to be a spiritual. I'm leading my family spiritually. I bring them to church. I'm Christian dad. I love Jesus. We're good. I don't need to hear. I don't need correction. I don't need teaching here. Thank you very much. It's really sad because that's the way a lot of men live. Uh, you, can, you can try to propose a book to an evangelical publisher on godly manhood. A few get out, <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard to sell a book aimed at helping men grow. Men being leaders in the home and the church. But it's really hard, ironically, to train them in leadership because they don't want it. They don't want to be trained. They don't want to be told that they don't have it all figured out. But they need this. We all need this. Again, this gets back to that insecurity, which can look like confidence. Men can present it like they have it all figured out. But here's the thing. God strips us of that as men. God shows us, by virtue of the incarnation, that we couldn't save ourselves. Our plans have failed. God had to send Jesus to die on a cross for us so that we would be saved. So every man is thus exposed as a failure. Every woman is exposed as a failure too. But every man is exposed as a spiritual failure. You couldn't save yourself. The one job you had to do, you couldn't do. You can't save yourself. You're not righteous. Only Jesus is righteous. Men need to hear this. We need to know that the news is worse and better than we thought. The gospel is worse for us because it exposes us as weaknesses and failures. It shows us that we're not who we should be as men. Men don't want to hear that. Men want to be self-sufficient, have it all figured out. But we don't. We don't. Even, even a godly, impressive man who's, who's pursuing biblical character, and those are real men, even those men know that they, they aren't self-sufficient. The goodness that is in their life, the virtue they have in their character, the strength that they possess, and these are all things they're called to. We're not called to be, you know, blubbering heaps on the floor for Jesus' sake. No, you're called to be a strong man in the name of Jesus. But all that strength in you isn't your own. It comes from God. It comes from God. It's God's work in you. That's where it comes from. The good news then is that what we're not, God will enable us to be. What we are not, God will enable us to be. But we have to die to ourselves. We have to literally take our old self, our pride, and we have to nail it to a cross and watch it bleed. 
That's what it takes for a man to know Christ and to live humbly. You have to crucify your pride. You have to confess to God that you are not sufficient. You are not able to save yourself. You might be able to to pull it off for a while. You may be able to be self-sufficient and strong and tough and lead and show no weakness for a while. But eventually God will unmask you. He will bring you low. He brings everybody low. He finds everybody out. No one can hide from the Lord. He will unmask us. The beautiful thing, though, is that when that happens, yes, it's a death to self, but it's when we begin truly living. It's when we begin truly living. So, we need a call to self-sacrifice and to godliness as men. Living in this way as a man, in conclusion, makes you vulnerable. It puts you at risk. Puts you at risk. To be a Christian is a tough position for many men. I think about athletic culture. I love sports. Man, I love sports culture. Uh, I was desperate to be a college basketball player and wanted to ground my identity in making it, as many men do. Many men crave that kind of success at some level, in some field. But here's the thing. God had a different plan for me, and God saved me for himself, and God showed me that I am not fundamentally called to be this incredible emblem of strength in the world, to show no weakness. I am a Christian, and regularly as a Christian, when you're in this world, you feel weird as a man. When you share the gospel, you feel exposed and you feel weak. When you turn the other cheek, when somebody attacks you, when somebody wants to fight you, when somebody throws a punch at you, I don't know. These things happen, right? You feel weak, don't you? Feel weak when you turn the other cheek. Jesus can seem like a weak savior in that regard, can't he? Jesus didn't fight back. I think some men don't follow Jesus because they, they perceive, they think wrongly that he was a pushover. What they don't know is this. Jesus went to the cross, not most fundamentally in weakness, but in strength. Jesus went to the cross to destroy the kingdom of darkness, to destroy the power of death. That's what Jesus did. When you and I turn the other cheek, when somebody attacks you at work, uh, when somebody calls you out for being weak as a Christian or mocks you, have you been mocked for being a Christian? This happens among, this happens among women, but it, I think it, it's especially a problem for men because we don't want to be weak. We just have to recognize that we are following Jesus. We are just like those disciples in John 1. Jesus said, follow me. And it doesn't matter what the world's going to do to us. It doesn't matter what our reputation is. Jesus is our reputation. Jesus is our image. Jesus is our brand. People can make us look foolish. We can feel shamed by the world. It doesn't matter. We are going to live forever with God. That is what men need. And that, lastly, that is actually what enables men not to be weak. (laughs) It's a gospel paradox. When you know that you're weak as a man and, and you know that God has made you strong in Jesus, not in yourself, but in Jesus, then you're freed to be brave and courageous and strong and virtuous in this world. Then you're free to be the guy in your group of friends, your coworkers, who can be mocked and who doesn't lash back 
who can be attacked and doesn't strike back. You can be that guy. You can be that guy who leads your family well. You can be that guy in a non-fancy way, uh, loves his wife, loves his children, builds into his church, invests in his church, is a light in his neighborhood and community. We can be that kind of God. I said at the beginning that many men feel unprotected, feel uh, like you could say they don't have a shield. And I think about what Spartan wives used to say to their husbands when these men would leave for battle. They would say, come home with your shield or on it. Come home with your shield or on it. And so that's what I would say to men of God today. In Christ, come home with your shield. Do battle with Satan. Strike back against the darkness or, or come home on your shield. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for men in this room and in this church, and I pray that you would do a good work in them. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen weak hands, Lord. We as men, we are proud, Lord. We don't want to admit we have problems. We don't want to reach out for help. We don't want to read books on being a godly man. We think we have it figured out. Father, I pray that you would humble us beneath your mighty hand. I pray that you would create a culture of humility and masculine service in this church. I pray, Father, that you would do a great work in men such that they would stop giving in to selfishness and weakness. And I pray, Father, instead that they would choose to build into their families, to love their wives and love their children, and to work hard at, at their job and, and to be a light in their community. I pray that you would do all of this by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, we are now going to talk about seven ways in summary that our worldview makes sense of the world. Okay, that's where we're going. So I want this to be a rapid fire session, and then after it, we're going to do a uh, Q&A time, and then we're done for the day, okay? And, and done for, I, I presume, deeper sessions 2016, Okay. So that's, that's what's on tap, all right? First, uh, so I have seven points for you. First, I want you to see that complementarity shows us that humanity is brimming with purpose. We are brimming with purpose. In other words, as we have talked about, we have a reason to live. We have a reason to exist in this world and glorify God. And that reason is fundamentally that God has made us image bearers. He has made us to image himself. And so um, we recognize this as part of what it means to be a Christian, to recognize that we have a purpose, we have a reason for living. We're supposed to image the Lord in this fallen world. So humanity is brimming with purpose. No human life is without meaning. Every human life has purpose by virtue of being the image of God. You're not a fully-fledged human being when you have, you know, a certain level of beauty or a certain level of intelligence or gifting or these sorts of things. We are saying by virtue of the image of God that if God has made you, you're a human being with tremendous dignity and worth. And this, of course, really matters, doesn't it, when we think about disabled people, handicapped people in our society. 
We think about how, for example, Down syndrome children are treated in America. Many of you have heard the stats in terms of abortion. Nine out of ten of them, on average, are aborted. So when a couple gets a diagnosis with Down syndrome, that's treated as if it's you know, a death sentence or something by the doctor. And in actuality, it usually is. We have a totally different perspective, right? We believe that that Down syndrome child has every reason to live. We welcome children of every kind, every ability level. That child is not less human than a very exceptional child, right? And we, we want to be a culture that, that warmly welcomes all kinds of people into our fellowship. The image of God is real. Interestingly, Down syndrome uh, children and, and people are by many accounts some of the happiest people there are, right? Some of you know them. Some of you have a family member who, who has this condition. Uh, we're not saying it's a condition we would, we would necessarily ask for for them, but interestingly, it seems to end up that Down syndrome people tend to love life and be thankful in a profound way for even very, very simple things. I remember reading a Boston Globe story by one mother I don't think she was a Christian, but uh, she was stunned by how people treated her daughter and how her daughter treated those same people. Um, many folks would see her, her daughter who had learning disabilities and, you know, Down syndrome condition and would say that she must have a miserable life and she must, you know, she must be such a burden on her mother. And her mother recounted how, for example, they went to Disney World as a family, and this child, this Down syndrome person, this girl, absolutely loved it and was, was a, a beacon <laughs> at Disney World, just loving the experience. All around this family were children the same age who were throwing fits. They were throwing fits because they didn't get what they wanted. They, didn't, they wanted to go to, you know, see the kingdom when they were here at these rides, and it was terrible. And so this mom was recounting in real terms, and you've, you've seen these fits, and perhaps children of your own, your own family have once in a while thrown a fit. I have had that in public myself. And so we know what that experience is like. It's not a fun experience. Uh, but then, then there was this child with Down syndrome who should, you know, fundamentally, from what people are saying, have a bad life, be miserable, just be sad all the time. And instead, everything was happy (laughs) to this child. She loved the entire experience. There was not a fit thrown because all of life for her, seemingly, she perceived as a gift. How much of a rebuke is that to our culture? What a rebuke to our culture that tells people who have less intellectual gifting or whatever, that they don't have a right to a happy life. They don't have a right even to a life. They should actually be aborted in the womb. And yet these are some of the happiest people and people who have so much more gifting and and, and so much more ability in human terms are miserable and whine and are sad. Oh, wow. We just recognize, brothers and sisters, that every life, every human life has dignity and worth, infinite dignity and worth. Second, this material that we've talked about, what I'm calling complementarity, this whole, this whole perspective on the sexes, God designing manhood and womanhood for his own purposes, giving men these roles and women these roles. This, this worldview, the scripture, helps us understand our sin 
It helps us understand why we sin in the way we do. It helps us understand in marriage why a woman bridles against her husband's authority and why a husband can be unkind to his wife. We recognize, of course, by the way, that a godly husband is not threatened by a smart, intelligent, wise wife. Christians don't ask women to damp down their God-given gifts. Christians don't ask really smart women to be 35% less smart so their husband can look good. Godly men are not threatened by godly women. Godly men want women who have gifts. When I am making decisions for my family, because I'm the head of my home, God has called me to be this. When I'm called to lead my family, I don't try to seal myself off in my study and say, Bethany, I'm very sorry, but I've got to make a decision. I can't talk to you for the next three days. When I have a decision to make, I recognize that God gave me a a wife of strong intelligence and gifting, and I try, at least a good portion of the time, excuse me, I try to pursue her. I try to draw her wisdom out. I want her to weigh in, is what I'm saying. I'm not threatened by her weighing in. What do you think we should do? We're talking recently, just the last few days. What should we do for, you know, vacation? What do you want to do for Thanksgiving? What do you want to do for Christmas? These sorts of things. Well, I I think I need to actually lead our family in these respects and to say nothing of much bigger issues. But even there, even, you know, where are we going to go for vacation? Bethany, what do you think we should do? What what would you like to do? That's that's a pattern, I think, of godly Christ-like headship. It's not that it's not that you're such an amazing leader that your wife would never weigh in. It's that you are freed from the fear of feeling weak, and so you ask your wife for wisdom. Now, as a leader, you make the call. A man really does lead. It's, this is meaningful leadership we're talking about here. This is what the Bible prescribes. So men have to make the call. That can be hard for both sexes, can it? Sometimes the man... Um, can feel weak in making that decision. Sometimes he makes it too strongly. Sometimes the woman kind of can be tempted to undermine him in his decision. Are you sure you should do that? These sorts of things. And you know what? It can be hard to be a godly wife submitting to a husband. It can be hard because you know what? Your husband sometimes does make a decision that wasn't the best or that doesn't play out the best. And that can be hard. That can be tough for a married couple. It can be tough in my house. I'm guessing it can be tough in yours. But here's the thing. You are working to glorify God by owning those roles of Christ-like headship and church-like submission. Ephesians 5 is a picture of Jesus laying down his life for the church, for his bride, dying on the cross for his bride. And that church is called not to lead Jesus, but to submit to him. So we need a full-fledged understanding of these roles. We also need to note that complementarity helps us understand how it is that a husband can reverse these sinful instincts. You see, Genesis 3 tells us that a husband is going to want to rule over his wife and a wife is going to want to master her husband. It helps us understand those dynamics in marriage in big and small ways. Complementarity gives us an understanding of why those things work out that way. You see the happy couple. You see, oh, beautiful Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Oh, they're getting married. It's such a fairy tale wedding. Wow, the whole world is watching. That couple, man, can you just imagine if we were Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie? We would have such reason to be an endlessly happy married couple. Oh, because we're such beautiful people and we're so famous and successful and wealthy. Everything is on the table that the human heart could ever want in that marriage, right? Right? 
and it crumbles. Sadly, we don't cheer that. I'm not cheering that. But it crumbles. Why does it crumble? I don't know all the dynamics of those two. I know very few dynamics, and I try not to learn much, uh, despite the fact that, for some reason, American culture wants to tell me a great deal about Brangelina. I don't want to know much about Brangelina. I don't really care. I'm, I'm glad to pray for them, for their salvation. He's a Missouri boy, isn't he? I think he's from Missouri. Uh, Southern Baptist raised, right? Southern Baptist raised, yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, so he's from our world. But anyway, I want them to be saved, but I don't really know about their workings. I do know this. I know why marriages fall apart, even the most shiny, happy, perfect Hollywood marriage. It's because it's not enough to be compatible. Compatibility is a terrible foundation for marriage in worldly terms of the kind I'm talking about. They're so attractive. They must just, it must just be such a romantic marriage because they're such beautiful people. They have so much money. They're compatible in that sense. Uh, psycho, you know, psychologically, when they take the test, they, they're compatible. Listen, sin will make hash of compatibility. Sin will ruin that compatibility you may have on paper. Compatibility is not bad. It's, it's good to want to, you know, work to learn one another and like similar things and want to do similar things in your free time. That's good. I'm not, I'm not down on that. I'm just trying to say that's not the foundation for a God-glorifying happy marriage. Sin gets in the way. Even the couple that most has it together on paper in worldly terms, sin is going to hit them hard. And that is why so many of those fairy tale marriages by the world's impressive people fade. And that is why so many marriages that are anchored in Jesus Christ and the word of God by people who may not be on the front pages or the, the cool website, that's why so many of those marriages, think of, your, think of your family, think of grandparents, think of your lineage, or if there is a history of familial breakup in your past, think of people you know. Think of people in this church or other churches you know. 60-year marriages, 70-year marriages, 50-year marriages. You have that, brothers and sisters, and you are wealthy. That is glorious. People used to want that. People used to think that was the good life. Now we think the good life is the Caribbean and eight weeks of vacation a year, and more money than the couple next door, and, you know, ever imp improving cars, you know, con constantly trading in the cars for better car, better car, better car. That's what we think the good life is now. Well, listen, trade in the car if you want. I don't really care. Buy a better house if you want. I don't really care. Here's the good life, though. The good life is the life God made for us, and a part of that for many people. Most Christians are going to end up married. Many are. The good life. The good life isn't isn't material things. The good life is a 70-year marriage. The good life is loving one man or one woman, if God calls you to marriage, all your life. That's good. That's glorious. But we understand why marriages fall apart. God charts it in Genesis 3. It's a part of the curse. Sin gets in the way. Third point, complementarity provides us with a script for our lives. Listen, we want to train young men to be leaders. We want to train our boys to be virtuous men of God. We want them to love one woman if God calls them to marriage. We don't know that. 
But we want that for them if he calls them to that. We want them to be workers. We don't want to train our boys to be on the couch and be lazy. We want to train our boys to take responsibility. We want our boys to take out the trash. We want our boys to get off the couch when their mom needs a glass of water. We want our boys to be responsible. We want them to be men of action. We want our boys at the playground to stand up for the kid who's getting picked on. We want our boys to go and sit with the weird kid in the cafeteria who the other kids don't like. We want our boys most of all to be captivated by Jesus Christ. We want them to know Jesus Christ, to love Jesus Christ. That's what we want for our boys. The Bible gives them a script. Young men today have no script. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're headed for. So a lot of them end up in a basement playing video games as if it's a full-time job. That's not acceptable for us. That's not what we're trying for. We are trying to raise young men who take action in the name of Jesus Christ. We're trying to raise godly young men. We are trying to help them see that they find the purpose for their life in serving God fundamentally, whether single or married. And we want them to be a worker. We want them to be a worker. We want to train them to see that work is good. Work is given men. It's good. It's honorable to put provision on your back and provide for a family, provide for a wife. That's a virtue that men used to grow up believing in and men have lost. No wonder men are struggling. No wonder men sit in the basement. You know what they're doing in the basement? They're not goofing off. They're taking on great challenges. <laughs> That's what men are doing in video games, man. They're leading a virtual man's life. That's exactly what they're doing. Men, most men aren't in the basement with some, you know, 60-inch TV, you know, Dolby surround sound. I mean, this is like, this is an unbelievable spectacle, what you have in front of you in modern life, right? They're not on there playing word games on that TV. They're not playing Scrabble. Most men, maybe a few men, but most men are out there conquering worlds, building kingdoms, rescuing civilizations. I know, I used to play a fair amount of video games. Winning championships in the sports games they play. Not every young man plays video games. Not every man, young man is drawn to this, but a lot are. But what are they doing on those games? They're doing virtually what we want them to do actually. They're taking risks. They're putting it all on the line. What young men today do on video screens is what we want young men to do in flesh and blood terms. We, we want them, if God calls them, he calls most people to marriage, we want them to win a woman's heart. We want them to raise godly kids. We want them to build a vocation, not just hold a job. That's fine. That's honorable to hold a job. We want them to build a vocation to see whatever gifts God has given them as in service to his kingdom. I didn't come from a preacher background. I didn't come from a theological family. My dad is a forester in Maine. My dad walks the woods of Maine for a living. He is a man of few words. He doesn't really like to preach. I'm dissimilar from him. I have many words, as you can tell. 
uh, to offer. My poor wife could give you many examples of that. Uh, but my dad wasn't like that. I know what it is to see an honorable man put his boots on and go to work in the woods of Maine day after day. It's cold. He walked through snow. He met bears in the woods and ran <laughs> and survived. I mean, this, this, was, this was an interesting existence. It's very different from the existence I live. I am, I'm a keyboard jockey. My dad walked the woods of Maine for a living. That's an honorable call. Whatever, whatever gifts God has given to men to use, he's given them to use for his glory. You don't need to be some kind of fancy man to glorify God. So we need men to want that kind of responsibility. That entails risk. That entails sacrifice. That entails hardship. That entails putting yourself on the line. That entails you, Lord willing, setting apart your wife as much as she can be set apart to love those kids and raise those kids and manage that home. That's not, a, that's not drudgery. That's not dreary. That's you giving her that opportunity to do what the Bible highly esteems. Titus 2, Proverbs 31. The Bible loves this kind of work. The Bible loves the home. The Bible esteems the home. You're putting provision on your shoulders. Men used to do this. Men used to do hard things. Men used to build big lives. Not in the sense that they landed on the front page of the paper. Not in the sense that they were doing something spectacular that no one could imagine doing. They did anonymous work day after day. But they built a big life. Young men today pursue a big life on a video screen. We have to call men to the script for their life. We have to call them to something better than virtual exploits. Uh, video games are fun. They're fun to play. In moderation, perhaps, maybe they can be played. But <laughs> what we want for our boys is something way, way bigger than a video game, right? What we want for our girls is the same. We want to train our girls to see that godly womanhood is beautiful. It's not the same as manhood. Girls don't look, smell, sound, talk just the same as men. We're not trying to sand this down. We're not trying to gender neutralize the world. We want girls to glory in being a little girl. I love it when my little girls are playing with dolls and are playing house. I love seeing my two-year-old Ainsley um, take, the, take the baby doll around and comfort the baby doll because the baby doll is scared because the noise is wowed. It's loud. She heard a train, she heard a train recently in Parkville, and it was very loud. And so she has said loud, wowed in point of fact, many, many times to my wife and I. She just walks around sometimes saying, wowed, it's wowed. And then when a balloon was released, unfortunately, on her, uh, on her sister's birthday, there was this shiny balloon that Ainsley, the two-year-old, loved. The balloon, unfortunately, was released into the air, oops, on the parent's part, and Ainsley was very disconcerted by this. She just said, again, one word for it, floated floated, that floated away. My wife said it floated away to her. She's trying to comfort her. So Ainsley walked around for like a week saying floated and we would have to kind of work through the trauma with her. Anyway, you know this kind of thing. Ainsley has instincts already at age two to nurture and love life and love babies. And that's not all womanhood is. That's not, that's not what we're saying. But that's beautiful. We want to nurture that. We don't know if our daughters are going to be married. I don't know if my daughters are going to be married or going to be called to singleness. I'm not saying we do know that. But we do know this. We're trying to train them to see that that life at the very least is a good thing. That's a good life if God gives you that. Those are honorable callings. It, 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 we're not raising our girls. I'm not raising my girls to be just like my son. I'm raising that son to go and provide, Lord willing, for a family. I'm raising my wife, my wife, I'm raising my girls, excuse me, to see 
I've talked a lot today. I'm raising my girls to see that, that to be a wife and a mother is a beautiful calling. That's a beautiful calling. I, I, I'm trying to train them unlike the way the world trains them. In all of this, we want young men and young women um, to, to learn to interact well with one another. I want my son to protect my girls. It doesn't mean my girls are helpless if anybody attacks them. No, we're not saying that. But we are saying we want men to step up and protect women in their care. We want young men to treat women with absolute purity as sisters. 1 Timothy 5.2. Apostle Paul says this to young men. Treat young women like sisters with absolute purity. So unlike the way the culture is educating our young men, our boys, training them to sexualize women and see them as having value if they're sexually attractive, we train our boys. In this church, I trust, in my church back in Kansas City, I want to tr- be a small part of training young men to see young women as sisters, treating them with purity. If young, if young men in their school gather together around a, a phone because there's some horrible image of a girl in the school or a girl on the web, I want those boys, I want my boy, I want Gavin, my son, to not go and gather with those boys. I want him to be set apart because he treats, he treats young women with absolute purity as sisters. Even in the church today, men and women interact kind of like bros, you know, and it, it, it's a little strange. We want young men to treat women uh, with reverence. We want them to esteem women. Uh, we don't want them to treat them just like their buddies. Um, so these are all things that we're thinking about. Fourth, complementarity tells us what our marriages most need. Tells us what our marriages most need. Our, the single greatest key to marital happiness and flourishing is not taking a psychological test. It is not taking a compatibility test. It is not eHarmony.com or whatever it is. The single greatest key in the world for marital happiness and flourishing is given us in Ephesians 5, to 33. It's this blueprint I've mentioned numerous times. It's the structure to marriage. We don't believe simply in learning one another's love language. Every godly husband should be learning his husband. Oh my goodness, there there I'm doing it again. I'm sorry. Josh, you can take back like 50 bucks at some point from from what I'm being paid because this is not going to be posted online, I trust. Um, Every every godly husband should be learning his wife. Sorry, guys. I, I really do apologize for that one. Well, it's coming to the surface, isn't it? It's coming to the surface. This is actually a Trojan horse of, uh, apparently, cultural thinking on sexuality. It's all coming unglued, folks. It's coming unglued. Uh, a, a husband, any husband who, who loves his wife uh, is not treating her generically, right? He's trying to learn what she likes. He's trying to be a Christ-like head. A Christ-like head is, is a husband who loves his his bride, he lays down his life for her. And so he's trying to learn what she likes. And she, conversely, is trying to learn what he likes. She's trying to be this submissive, church-like wife. So what is she doing? She's trying to learn what makes him happy. You know, I don't know. She's baking him, perhaps, if she's an especially godly, hus- uh, godly wife. There it is again. She's baking him chocolate chip scones, right? I mean, so this is, these are the kind of dynamics that we have in place in a happy Marriage, But that doesn't owe to compatibility thinking. That owes to Ephesians 5. That owes to a husband trying to be a godly husband and a wife trying to be a godly wife. What our marriages most need is to own God's design for marriage. That's what I'm trying to say. Fifth, complementarity drives us to invest in the church's future. 
to invest in the church's future. This means that we are trying to train young men and young women according to the Bible. So we're trying to train young men per 1 Timothy 3 to have the character of an elder. We want young men to look not at the sports stars at Mizzou or LeBron James or Des Bryant or whoever it is, the Kansas City Chiefs. We don't want our, our boys to look first to athletes or celebrities as those they look up to, though they will, that's fine, that's totally fine. But we want them to look up to first elders, godly men. Ideally, our boys would say, I want to be like X, the dude in the church who's a godly leader. I want to be like him. Ideally, our girls, per Titus 2, would be looking first to godly women as examples. And they would think, I want to be like her. I can remember this. Some of you remember this. I, I went to, I didn't have many um, godly uh, men and women around me in my town in Maine. There were very few Christians in my high school. Very, very few Christians. But when I went to summer camp, uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship summer camp, there were older guys and girls both who loved the Lord and followed him. And I can just remember how powerful that was for me. I looked up to them so, so much. In the young men especially, I saw what I wanted to be. I want to be a godly young man. Don't underestimate how boys and girls in this congregation are looking at you now as an example. Guy or girl, married or single, know that. Boys and girls are watching. They're watching you more than you know. You can be an example to them in this church. We want to, we want to encourage godliness uh, for, for boys and girls, for future generations. Sixth, complementarity. The biblical worldview speaks a better word about sex than secularism. We have been told by so many different cultural products that we're repressive and the culture is freeing. Listen to me. Freedom is not the freedom to do as much sin as you can. True freedom is the freedom to be holy. That's when you're free. Think about it with me. You got to define freedom according to divine terms, heavenly terms. Are you going to be free or repressed in heaven? Are you going to be shackled in heaven? Or are you going to be truly free? You're going to be truly free, right? You're not going to have any sin weighing you down. You're going to be pulled to, to any sin. You're going to be pulled to doubt God. You're not going to be pulled to despair. You're not going to be pulled to depression. You're not going to be pulled to lust. You're not going to be pulled uh, away from prayer and scripture. In any sense, there will be no pull. There will be no tug on you, tugging you to try and sin. You're going to be free. So what does that tell you about freedom? Is freedom getting to sin as much as you possibly can? No, right? Freedom, defined biblically, is being free of sin. That's what it means. So listen, when Fifty Shades of Grey comes out as a movie and tons of women in our culture buy into that as a picture of sexual liberation, is that liberation? It is not liberation. It pulls at women, that fantasy that it portrays, of having this kind of bachelor guy be involved in this extended liaison with you and doing all sorts of things. Uh, that pulls at women. That's a temptation for women. Women are sexually tempted, just as men are sexually tempted. But it's not a true temptation. It's a lie. That's not liberation. That's, that's not, it's not happiness. To be free for a Christian 
defined by God is to be free to love God. That's when you're free. In heaven, you'll be free. The students on college campuses, Lincoln, Mizzou, UMKC in my city, KU, whatever it is, Stanford, I don't care, Iowa State, those students who are being sold a vision of freedom that means give in to your basic desires and appetites, that's not freedom, that's slavery. Slavery. When you and I lust sinfully, we are not giving in to freedom. We're not free. We're trapped. We're enslaved. We're falling back into sinful patterns. To be free is to be holy by the power of Jesus Christ. So when, listen to me, please, this is very practical. When you are tempted, when, you're, when your mind is tempted to go a place as a woman to think that, you know, this, this person who is not your spouse, this, who is not your husband, this person is going to give you what you think you need, that is a lie. That's not freedom that you're being tempted with. That's slavery. When you are tempted as a man by an image on the internet, an image that now seemingly pops up on every web page. I mean, you search for, you know, cricket, uh, cricket call patterns in the wild, and you get a web image that you did not want. You see things you should not be seeing. Do you know what I'm talking about, anybody? Know what I'm talking about? This happens all the time now. That's not freedom. That image is not freedom. That temptation is not freedom. That's enslavement. That's destruction. So we recognize that we have a better vision of sex and freedom than our world has. And we are called, man, we are called to reach out to men and women all around us who are trapped in lies, who are buying this vision of freedom, which is no freedom at all. It's destruction. You and I need to be the church of Jesus Christ. We need to reach out to sinners just like us, weak just like us, and tell them that they're not they're not living in freedom. They're living in slavery. They're living in bondage to the lusts of the flesh. And this is not going to make them happy. You need to be direct with fellow sinners just like you and me. You need to be direct with them. Too often we dance around evangelism. Listen, as I said last night, build the friendship. Be a real person. <laughs> be a normal person to, to the, the sinners around you, the lost people around you, coworkers, neighbors, whatever it may be, family members. But share the gospel with them. Tell them the truth. Call them out of bondage. It may not feel loving in the moment. It may feel shameful. Your, your cheeks may get red in the moment. I get it. It happens to me. It happens to you. But tell them where true freedom is found. It's found in Jesus Christ. Lastly, complementarity helps us appreciate the goodness of singleness. As you have heard me say already, Jesus was not married, and yet he was surpassingly happy. This does not mean that singleness for a good number of singles will be easy. I don't want to give that impression either. I've talked already at some length about how we do not believe that you become a godly man or a godly woman when you get married. So you should have heard me clearly on this. But I'm, I don't want to be misheard, and I could be misheard. I'm not saying that every single, every single man or woman exists in some kind of state where they're just pervasively happy. Ah, this is my call. I am here. I could do no other. No, it may be hard for Christian singles to remain single. I mean hard in a real sense. Paul talked about a thorn in his flesh, for example. He doesn't, he doesn't identify what it is, 
But he talks about a thorn in the flesh that was tough for him and didn't exactly go away. I think, I don't know if that's singleness or not. I can say this, though, based on experience. That could be what singleness is for some people in the church. It could be that a single person is not called to marriage, but they want to be married, and that could be a desire that they have that does not fade. But for whatever reason, God does not choose to give them marriage. So we're not trying to say, on the one hand, either that only marriage is good, and we're not trying to say that singleness is going to be some kind of endlessly blissful state. Both states have challenges, right? And the vision of marriage as this, oh, if I could just get married, I would be, I would be happy, is a false vision. Because only Jesus makes you lastingly happy. Only the gospel gives you endless delight. You can't make marriage or anything Having kids, you see, you see people without children, sadly, at least tempted by this vision. If we could just have kids, then we would be happy. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. We all have this temptation. We all are tempted to think, every one of you, including me, is tempted to think, if I could just have Jesus plus something, I would be happy. It's not true. I'm going to close with this. It's not true. This isn't a Jesus plus faith. Now, God is very pleased and kind to give us many gifts as believers. He gives us so many gifts, we deserve none of them. So I'm not saying the life of a Christian is empty and vacuum-free of, of any delight. No, 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 no. God gives us tons of gifts. But the only thing we need, need, is Jesus. Give us Jesus, and we have the world. Take away Jesus, and we have nothing. We are all drawn away, though. I have, this, I have this equation in my mind. You have this equation in your mind. It's something for you. If I could just have Jesus and Jesus plus this state, then I would be happy. If I could just get married, yes, Jesus is great, but if I could just get married, then I would be happy. If I could just have kids, Yes, Jesus is great, then I would be happy. If my kids could just be this kind of kids, then I would be happy. If my kids would, would want to serve the Lord in ministry, then I would be happy. If I could just have this job, then I would be happy. If these people in my life could accept me, then I would be happy. If I could have, oh, so tough financially, if we could just get some money in the bank, man, then we'd be happy. If I could just have a better truck, better car, then I'd be happy. Man, we can do this. You can play this 10,000 different ways. Every one of them is a lie. Every one of them. And you have this category, you have this equation that you run in your mind, and I do too. And we have to repent of it, and we have to confess it to the Lord, because there's nothing outside of Jesus that satisfies. There's nothing outside of the grace of God in Christ that we must have. That's it. What a perspective this is. What a perspective this is. This is nothing other than raw Bible. This is not some brilliant theological insight. Not at all. This is you and me, Hebrews 12, coming to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom of Christ. This is you and me, Hebrews 13, going outside the camp to Jesus Christ and dwelling with him there. We've left respectability. We've left the city of man and we have gone to Jesus and he is our everything. 
This is why, even before the name of Jesus was known, Job could lose family, house, fabulous wealth, right? The book of Job, Job 1, right? This is the perspective I'm talking about. Job actually walked through the nightmare scenario we sometimes think about, but most of us don't experience. Job experienced it. Job literally lost everything. His wife told him to curse God and die. That's how bad it was. It could not have been worse in earthly terms. That's what Jesus, that's what, that's what God is telling us in the book of Job. This is the nightmare scenario. The one that wakes you up in the middle of the night where you think, is my family dead? Did I lose my job? Do I have no money? Whatever it is, whatever it is, the nightmare scenario, Job lived it. And what did Job do? He followed the Lord. He trusted God. He, 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 he did not walk away from God. By the grace of God, he clung to God. This is what I'm saying is what we have in Jesus. We have a Jesus-centered faith. The world can do its worst to you. The world can malign you. You can lose your job for holding to these kind of teachings that we have spelled out in the last several sessions. Really. I mean, I think, the, there's, I think there are probably waves of persecution coming in America. I think there's, there's going to be one on college campuses, university campuses. There's going to be persecution there. There's definitely going to be persecution, interestingly, in the medical community for doctors who hold to biblical sexual ethics, for nurses as well, just general workers in the medical community who don't hold to, um, you know, perceiving homosexuality, transgender as positive. There's going to be all sorts of harmful consequences there. Abortion, who won't perform abortive practices, these sorts of things. This, these things are already happening. There's going to be, I think, probably a wave coming in business culture. Interestingly, you're seeing this. This isn't business, but the NCAA, what the NCAA has done with North Carolina in pulling ACC championship games for North Carolina because it's discriminatory, because it, North Carolina has the audacity to have restrooms for men and women, right? By the way, the NCAA has the audacity to have leagues for, fill, fill in the blanks for me here, men and women. So what is the NCAA doing? It's punishing North Carolina for doing what it does. You see this? This is nonsense. This is all a big nonsense machine. It makes no sense. Okay? It, it really doesn't. But it's coming. I think there's a wave coming in business. Probably. I think there's waves coming in many areas. Maybe they won't come. Maybe they will break on rocks. <laughs> we hope so. We don't ask for persecution. But here's the deal. If we have Jesus, we can withstand these waves that are coming. We can withstand any attack. We have infinite hope. We have infinite confidence because the world will do its worst to us, but Jesus will hold us fast. That's your confidence. That, my dear friends, close with this. That is why you can stand for these tough things, these countercultural biblical teachings that I have laid out. I have put about 50 countercultural things on the table. Uh, I commend you for staying with me, for hanging with me these hours. We've put a lot on the table in terms of countercultural biblical teaching. This is why we can stand for these things. We can stand for them because Jesus hasn't called us to manage our image or our reputation. Jesus has called us to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to image biblical sexuality in a world that hates it. I pray, Father, even as the culture does seem to be persecuting Christians in increasing measure in this society and others for holding to biblical teaching on sex and gender, I pray that you would cause us not to go silent, but to courageously and winsomely and graciously 
stand on the truth of your word and proclaim it. I pray that you would help us to call sinners just like us. We are no better than them. I pray that you would help us to call sinners just like us to repentance and faith and freedom, true freedom, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Q&A, right, Josh? Yes. We're going to do some questions now. If you all got any questions, this can uh, span anything that was said this morning or even last night if you had something come to your mind. I know you all laid in bed last night late and just dreamt up a thousand different things that you wanted to ask regarding everything we've discussed so far. So this will be the time when we can uh, throw out some some final questions and then uh, we'll be done for the morning. I'm going to start us out with the first one. And uh, my question is, what do you say to the man or woman, the husband or wife, who regarding uh, complementarity and, and, um, and that whole system that you've done a great job explaining over these several hours, um, they are in a relationship, most, let's just say a married relationship, where they're amening everything that you're saying, but their spouse is just mm. either not a believer altogether mm. or um, maybe just isn't really buying it. So, you know, the mm. wife who genuinely legitimately desires for her husband mm. to lead and he won't lead the family or mm. vice versa the husband who is doing his best to lovingly lead and shepherd his wife and his wife is uh, rebelling against that in every way what mm. encouragement do you have for them what a good question that's really important when when i present on these things i'm trying to give what god would have us do you know as a, as a goal right so it's the hashtag that you see on Twitter these days, hashtag goals, okay? This is hashtag biblical goals. So that's what we're pursuing. But we're not saying these things are going to be easy. There's going to be, there's going to be tough situations. There are going to be marriages where these patterns are not in place. They are not. And it's going to take time for them to get sorted out. And in fact, there may be some marriages where they aren't sorted out. You know, in First Peter 2, uh, Peter talks about what an, a wife of an unbelieving husband is to do. First Peter 3, I should say. Um, let me load that here on my device so that I can quote it accurately. And um, Peter's words to the, to the woman uh, in this section are aimed at a woman who is in this kind of situation that Josh has mentioned. It's a woman whose husband is not following the Lord. It's First Peter 3, 1 through 7. And in this, in this passage, Peter tells wives who are, again, married to husbands who are not following the Lord, not obeying the Lord, that they are still to submit to their husband. Now, they're not to submit to their husband if he calls them to disobey the Lord. They shouldn't do that. No wife should ever disobey the Lord in order to follow her husband. She should always break with her husband in following the Lord. But her spirit, uh, living with an unbelieving husband or a husband who is just not following the Lord as he should. He's a Christian, but he's not really, he's not leading her well. And I fear that's probably a good number of wives out there. Because many churches, by the way, don't teach this stuff. Many evangelical churches, the, the material I have given you that, that Josh asked me to deliver to you, many churches go soft on this. And they do joke about this stuff. And they don't like it. Because it's hard stuff. These are the harder corners of the gospel. This is not the soft stuff that sounds good to everybody. In the culture. This is the, everybody loves talking about the love of God, right? Everybody loves talking about that. 
Everybody loves a sermon about the love of God. Not everybody loves a sermon about manly headship and womanly submission. That's where you start to see just how much a church has gone into the love of God's word. If a church will preach about that in a direct, clear, biblical, gracious way, that is a church that has its arms around the word of God. If a church won't preach about that, that is a church that is going soft on the word of God. And I fear there are a lot of assemblies out there, a lot of churches out there that are soft. I fear that's the truth. In this situation, man, a woman is called to love her husband and submit to him everywhere she can. She's called to, a, in 1 Peter 3, 4, a gentle and quiet spirit. She's not called to go toe-to-toe with him and argue him into the kingdom, pester him into the kingdom. She's called to love him. She's called to submit to him. She's called to respect his leadership. By contrast, a husband who is married to an unsubmissive wife, this husband wants to glorify the Lord, wants a, a God-honoring marriage per Ephesians 5, Per 1 Peter 3, these kind of texts, he is called to love her just like Jesus loved the church. He's not going to do it perfectly, but that's his, that's his goal. That's what he's seeking. And, we, and, and then both spouses in both situations are praying like the wind, asking God to give their spouse growth and godliness or godliness itself. Um, so that's, that's, that's a huge part of what we should be doing, Right? Every spouse, in every marriage, we should be praying for our spouse specifically. Not in a generic sense. Not just God bless them. Please just draw them nearer. No, we should be praying for our spouse that they would love the biblical design for godly womanliness or godly manliness. So those are some of the things I would say. My question has a little context behind it. I remember as growing up... um, some of the things that you mentioned last night, like pray the gay away and unbiblical thinking of the church regards to homosexuality, is do you, do you believe that some of the reason that this has ramped up in recent times, the homosexual view of marriage, is because of the church's unbiblical view of, um, or maybe not unbiblical view, but unbiblical way of they handled uh, the homosexual community and hmm. hi- uh, the history of that. Yeah. And how important do you think it is to looking into the future of the ways we, we believe doctrine and the authority of Scripture? And how we, should we handle that? Yeah, that's thoughtful as well. I mean, I would say I don't think the church has always handled the, the issue of homosexuality well. I do think that the church has, in some cases, probably made people who experience same-sex attraction feel like they are a special class of sinner, like they're a worse kind of sinner than anyone else. To the extent that that has been true, that has been damaging and has had real effect, and some of those effects continue to play out. So I would say that. I would also say that if the church had been lily-white perfect in handling homosexuality, I think the culture would still be where it is. Sometimes I hear people uh, blaming the church for any number of problems in society. I'm sure that the church could have helped things generally at the local level and the national level, international level, if it had handled any number of matters better. Divorce, marriage, homosexuality, these and other things, right? We could have done a better job. We know that. We know we could have. Even if we had, I don't think we are the meta cause that we sometimes hear we are. I think that you, you go back, that now we're doing some intellectual history here. 
which is quite a thing given what has already come before. But if you look at the Enlightenment in Europe and you look at its anti-Christian bent and then you see it jump the Atlantic and come to America and very much be anti-religion and anti-God and anti-Christian morality, and then you see that, that whole movement growing in America over the centuries, you recognize that America as a country is not really a Judeo-Christian nation alone. It's really the marriage of two, this is broad terms, it's really the marriage of two different groups, Judeo-Christian people, so religious people, there's all sorts of those in America and have been for centuries, but there's also a lot of... Uh, Enlightenment people, meaning people who aren't really religious. Thomas Jefferson kind of people, right? People who maybe are friendly in some ways to religion, but then want to make their own version of the Bible. Thomas Jefferson famously gutted the New Testament, right? You've heard this? He crossed out the parts he didn't like and kept the parts he did like. I would say Jefferson represents a pretty significant strand of American history. So I would say American public life is kind of a combination of Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Jefferson together. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards loves God, loves his word. There's a lot of people like that, or at least who are religious in America. And then there's a lot of people who are either, mm, at best, friendly to religion, and at worst, hostile to religion, represented by, by Jefferson. What's happening is that over the centuries, the Jefferson wing of America gains ground. And in the 20th century, more or less starts to push the religious part of America out of the public square to the extent that now in 2016, I think it's pretty clear the Jefferson wing is winning. And in the scoreboard, they're starting to put points on the board against us. And so that means that there's only going to be more more of this to come. That's what I would say. This is a question for what would you say? So you're going to say, what would I the answer say? is going to be what would you say? Okay. I have a friend at work, and she came to me, and she has a 12-year-old son, and he had talked to her the night before, and he was really concerned because, you know, a lot of his other boyfriends, friends at school don't, don't, don't have girlfriends, and he, he's not interested in girls. Okay. Immediately she said to me that she said to him, well, what about a boyfriend? How about if you have a boyfriend? If you're not interested in girls when you're 12, how about if you have a boyfriend? Have you thought about that? Mm. What would you say? Wow. How much time do you have? Um, I would say that's a very cultural way of understanding sexuality, that you just choose uh, whatever path you want based on whatever desires you have. But that the Bible, the Bible doesn't allow for that pagan ethic to be present in a Christian. We don't believe that we just practice whatever desire we feel inside. You know, the culture is very double-minded on this point. I'm really glad you asked this because it gives me a chance to say something I should have said earlier and didn't say. The culture is very double-minded when it comes to express yourself, be who you are, do whatever you want, right? I mean, these are the mantras of our postmodern era. Do whatever you want. Be who you are. Embrace yourself. Do what makes you happy. These are all all the things we hear. Does our culture, though, want us to practice that mentality, for example, when it would come to incest? There are at least a lot of people today, I'm not talking about Christians, in the broader culture who would very much not be pro-incest. There are many people who would not be pro-adults 
entering into sexual relationships with children, right? There are many people who would not be pro-bestiality. Okay, why do I raise these weird things, these somewhat tough-to-talk-about things? I raise them because we don't want people to be who they are. We don't want people to express their basic desires. We don't. We don't want a 50-year-old man to go to a daycare and choose a six-year-old girl to enter into a romantic relationship with. Normal people in the culture understand that that is abhorrent, which it is. But what are, wait a minute. You just told that guy, the culture just told that guy he can do whatever he wants. Be who you are. Choose your desire. Do you want a boyfriend? Do you want a six-year-old for your sexual partner? We have to recognize that our ethic is consistent and the world's ethic is inconsistent. And we have to make that clear to them. Like, looks like I've got the last question, and then we'll be done. And this is probably going to be the most controversial question that um, maybe you have to answer. Um, t- thinking about um, the responsibility that men have to lead and that women um, have to um, submit to their loving leadership. Yep. At what level, and, and I ask this because I hear very solid people disagree on, on, on this question. To what level does that mentality transpose itself into society in that if I believe that it's the man's responsibility to lead in, in the home, do I also believe in every instance it's the man's responsibility to lead in government? Mm. So, for example, could I have voted for Carly... Fiorina? Yes. Could I have voted for her for president? Um, could I, if there was a um, good Bible-thumping woman that was running for um, uh, president, you know, could I, could I vote for her? Could I not vote for her? What is your personal opinion? Yeah. What, yeah, what level does that transpose into, into secular society? Yeah, I think that's a great question too, an important one. Um, there's an interesting verse in Isaiah 3, verse 12. The Lord says this, My people... Infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. This is Yahweh saying this to his covenant people, and it's very similar to what we heard last night from the mouth of Deborah, interestingly. Not a man saying this, but a woman. A woman saying to Barak, right, Judges 4, uh, verses 8 and 9, it is not to your glory that the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And here is a very similar kind of testimony. Women rule over my people, Yahweh says. And this is, this is bad. This is a negative reality. So we recognize in Old Covenant Israel that the Lord had indeed called men to self-sacrificially lead. This is his design. This is what he instituted. We recognize that in New Testament terms, in the home and in the church, men are clearly, as I have said, several times, called to lead. So the question then comes, what about society? Do we have the same standard uh, in the nation state as Israel had in its own nation state? And I think we have to very, very quickly say things have changed in terms of broader society. So um, the Bible, though the old covenant voices that perspective, the new covenant does not say we can only vote for a man to hold public office. So I think if a Christian has choices 
where uh, you're faced between ungodly options and a you know a godly woman running for office, for example. I think you should vote for that woman. I do. I, do. I don't think you're sinning. Um, I do think, though, that we still have a stake in men stepping up in public leadership. And so as a church, we do seek to encourage men to step into public affairs and lead. We want men to lead in society. We really do. We don't, we don't take that to mean, though, that women can never lead. Uh, I certainly wouldn't. So, you know, a man, a Christian man in this church may have a woman uh, for a boss at work, and we may totally support that. You know, I wouldn't say quit your job or something. Um, I would call, I would try to do my best, though, to call men to be in leadership positions wherever they can be. Amen. Amen. It's been fun, hasn't it? It's always fun. Um, I'm going to, first of all, well, thank you so much again for coming and spending your weekend with us. If you didn't hear that last night, he's going to be preaching tomorrow morning in both services as well. So I encourage you to come out for that. We've got three baptisms to open up the uh, second service. Encouraged about that as well. So, um, let's see. I think that, uh, I think we're, we're done. Okay. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll be dismissed for the day. And then I'll see you back tomorrow morning. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, for um, your love and for your grace and your mercy and the fact that you freely give that to us. You freely just pour that out on our lives. And we've um, covered much over this last period, um, this morning and then last night. And uh, it's going to be difficult for many of us to retain this. Some of us are hearing this for the first time, and for some of us this is just a refresher. And maybe even for some of us, uh, we're approaching the subject and these issues with really no understanding of what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. So my prayer, my request is that we would come examining your word, that we would, um, that you would keep it fresh in our hearts and our minds, and that we would leave here changed and no longer con- having our minds conformed by the world and by the world's standards, but by your word. That's my prayer, Lord. I also thank you for Dr. Strand and uh, for his willingness to teach us. Pray that your Holy Spirit fall upon him again as he preaches tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.